Welcome to Ho Ho Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday. This is episode 136, our fifth annual Christmas show. It's the most wonderful time of the year. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth movie reviews for classics and all the new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. I'm your MC for the evening, Wolfman Josh. My lone co-host tonight is Dave Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Josh, I keep forgetting that you're British. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Jay of the Dead will be joining us tonight, never fear, but his holiday schedule is very tight, so he will be joining us a little bit later in the show. It is a good show though, Dave. I'm I'm excited about it. We have three feature reviews. Yep. Yep. A filmmaker interview and a ton of Christmas present giveaways for our listeners. Guys, even if you think you didn't enter the contest, listen, because we are going to be picking some winners from those who have subscribed and left reviews on our iTunes page. So if you've ever yep. left us an iTunes review, you could potentially be a winner tonight. Yeah. And it's some good stuff. I mean, it's some really good stuff. Yeah. So we knew that we were going to be covering Better Watch Out this Christmas. We've been talking about that since October, but we were looking for a second film, you know, for, for another feature review. And we were debating between a lot of movies, you know, as we usually do, kind of going back and forth, trying to figure out, well, I covered this on this and you covered that on that trying to decide what we wanted to do. And ultimately I thought, let's just take it to the audience. So we posted a poll on Twitter for our listeners and we had 85 votes. So thank you to everyone who voted. The options were three 2017 Christmas horror films, red Christmas, the elf and once upon a time at Christmas. The final one there once upon a time at Christmas was the winner at 47%. So that will be our primary feature review here tonight, but there is another little surprise coming. Then after that, we will have our review of better watch out an interview with director, Chris Peckover. That's about an hour long and then the prize giveaways. So yeah, a lot of great stuff coming your way. I'm excited about that. We want to thank our sponsors who sponsored the prize giveaways tonight that would be ghoulish gary Pollan. he's got a new book out called ghoulish the art of gary Pollan. he got four limited edition stickers that we can give away and actually we should give a huge shout out to juan who is the one that actually brokered this deal with gary that's awesome. and and collected these stickers and sent them to us and so we really have juan to thank for organizing that portion of the giveaway. Juan also bought a couple of pins 
from Gary that he's just donating to this giveaway tonight. So if you want some cool ghoulish Gary pins, that's up for grabs. And it's all thanks to Juan who organized that. We'll also be giving away two copies of Hell House LLC, the director's cut on DVD. We reviewed that last episode and uh, POV horror. The people over at found footage critic gave us two copies of that DVD to give away. Awesome. We have a fright rags t-shirt silent night, deadly night, you know, again, kind of keeping it in the Christmas theme. It's a really cool silent night, deadly night t-shirt. And we will be giving one of those away. Thanks to fright rags. We'll be giving away some of the horror movie podcast t-shirts, at least one, as well as some other prizes that we've had kicking around for a while. And the latest addition to our prize giveaways, this really cool book from Printed in Blood called The Thing Art Book, which has 350 artists from all disciplines, fine art, comic book art, poster art, coming together to uh, honor the 35th anniversary of John Carpenter's The Thing in this beautiful book and just all new art. It's really cool. Big names, Francesco Francavilla and Gary Poland, who we've already mentioned and huge names in the comic book world have all contributed to this uh, book. And Dave and I got a chance to see that. We'll be talking about that later in our new segment, the collector's crypt. And we'll also be giving one of those away. So thank you to those sponsors. We really appreciate you donating that to our wonderful audience. And at this point in the show, let's get into it. Let's go ahead and jump into our feature review of Once Upon a Time at Christmas. What was that? These descriptions of the killers are accurate? It's something about two freaks dressed up as Mr. and Mrs. Claus. Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring. Not even a mouse. But I heard Nick exclaim as he drove out of sight. Happy Christmas to all, and to all a bloody good night. All right, Once Upon a Time at Christmas, uh, 2017 release. And uh, it's set in a small town. Uh, I want to say Woodbridge is the name of the town. Mm-hmm. And there are two killers on the loose, dressed as Santa and Mrs. Claus. And they, uh, as each day passes, this is uh, in December, starts around mid-December. As each day passes, the the crimes escalate, the victims escalate. And it's left up to the uh, a small town, uh, sh- a small town police department, to try and figure out what's going on. And at the same time, there's a family involved, a young girl named Jennifer. Some of her friends are, are being victimized, but she seems to be the center of this whole thing as if, um, you know, she's, she's tied into it in a way that I guess uh, she's not sure how, the police aren't sure how, but it will all uh, make itself known once Christmas Day rolls around. Yep. So, Dave, what did you think of Once Upon a Time at Christmas? Uh, I, I, th- I think let's start with... Santa and Mrs. Claus, because I think that's the first thing that really stood out to me from the poster and the trailer, especially. But yeah, in the film as well, I thought that they were interesting. I think they get more interesting as the movie 
progresses and we find out a little more about them. I mean, they're sort of uh, enigmatic early on where they just sort of pop out, do these things, and then they disappear. I thought that the performances of the two may have been two of the better performances in the film, to be honest with oh, yeah. you. And that, that's, I, I definitely think... Uh, so the scenes with them were, were interesting. They're not in it as much as you would think. A lot of times mm-hmm. reviewing the aftermath of something that's yeah. happened um, or, you know, or, or you know, the one final victim happens to walk in at the wrong time. Um, but no, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was interesting. And of course for Christmas, it's kind of cool to have these two as, as killers. Um, I think you, you, you're sort of pushing that, you know, even, even today people get upset with a Santa Claus killer. I know when, when Sint came out a few years ago, you had some parents upset mm-hmm. that it was showing um, what would be an evil Santa Claus on the poster, you know, in, in the advertisements. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, Silent Night, uh, Deadly Night from way back when. Um, but I, I – so I kind of like that. I like that aspect of it. Um, that was probably one of the things that I liked best about the movie. No, I agree. I think they are – or they should be the stars of the movie. Because right. I think you spend a lot of time with the, the police officers. You spend a lot of time with the cops. And you spend a lot of time, like you said, with this teenage girl. She's supposed to be teenage. She looks like she's like 27. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Um, I, I feel like, and I don't know if it is the strength of her performance or lack of strength in her performance. But I just don't care at all about her storyline when I watch this. I don't, I don't know if that would be true if there was a great actress in that role. It's right. hard to say, mm-hmm. but as is, it's just like, who cares? Like move on, like get me back to Santa and Mrs. Claus. They are electric when they're on screen. Right. They are. They're, they're very good. She has this definite kind of Harley Quinn vibe to mm-hmm. his Joker. Right. Exactly. And he is just like the deranged clown. He's this deranged Santa Claus. They just look great. I mean, you know, physically as actors and, you know, the production design and wardrobe around them, they've got a cool look and they are, I think, iconic slasher movie killers if they'd been given that opportunity. I'd really like to see this film kind of have two halves, the cops and these killers, you know, right, and right. and and get a lot more of that. I, I also liked the younger deputy police officer in this oh. Sheriff Mitchell for me, who was one of the main police officers, he did not work for me very well. I don't know if the performance was strong. I think the character was okay. I just don't think the performance was there. Um, but yeah, the younger yeah. the younger deputy was was fine. I mean, when you when you're looking at these the characters that this movie gives you, and it's kind of tough too, I think, for the performances because I didn't really care for a lot of the dialogue. The dialogue yeah. seemed very sort of ordinary. Like, here's what this type of character would would say, would say in any other movie in this situation. Um, so I don't know that they had a lot to work with either. I mean, it was totally interesting because I th- feel like had it been played as a comedy, I think some of the lines are actually really funny. Oh yeah, the one I quoted at the beginning was uh, w- was one. You know, and that comes a little later yeah. in the movie. Oh, I, this guy's sitting there going. Uh, in, the, in like one of the, th- the thickest like UK like British accents you're ever going to hear, he says it, but it's not until he calls the calls the you know says the bird when he's talking about one of the women, and the sheriff goes, yeah. "Oh, I keep forgetting you're British." Yeah, 
Well, there were these moments like that that felt kind of forced, right? And when, when you're watching it initially, you're like, that felt really weird. Like, that was yeah. a really weird scene. But then it all makes sense as the plot is revealed, you know, and there there's a reason that it's happening. There's a reason it's happening. Now, yeah. one of the things that frustrated me the most about the movie was mm-hmm. I figured out what was going on a good 40 minutes before the rest of the characters in this movie figured out what was going on. Yeah, and it's hard not to just due to the language that has to be yes. used to describe what's happening with these killings. And we we will do a little short spoiler conversation about this. So let's not go too deeply into that yet. Right. But um, because I think we have to to really get to the core of what this is. But I agree, and I think I think the audience is ahead of of the movie a couple of times. I like the ideas. I just feel like. They didn't maybe have the cast to pull it off. Yeah, the script, I was unsure of whether the script was bad or if it was just a delivery. You right. Know? Okay. I, I, that's fair enough. I did want to talk about the cinematography. There are two cinematographers credited here, uh, Daryl Gilmore and Jamie Bailey. And Jamie Bailey has an annotation that says segment director of photography. So I'm not sure what that refers to. But Daryl Gilmore has worked in kind of the camera and electrical department on some really huge films like Battleship, for instance, or he worked on the set of Lost, the television show, and Hawaii Five-0, the television show. So he's been on some really big projects as like camera assistant. As a cinematographer, he's got 16 credits to his name, but a lot of those are short films and television. I think this is one of the first feature films that he shot. And I will say the photography is really good in terms of how artfully done it is. Like there are a lot of really cool, beautiful shots. Some of it's kind of handheld and it's got this great energy for a lot of it. I think it falls a little bit short in terms of communicating the scenes, and again, I don't know. There, there are several really weak performances in this movie, and there are scenes where you think, "Well, this shot is really great," but I'm not getting the emotion of this character across. Right, right. It might be more effective if this was like in a medium shot or a close up, where I could really get the impact of what these people are saying, even though this shot from across the room or from like below the desk looks cool it's not necessarily the best for communicating the story. And I, I wonder if that is to do with a less experienced cinematographer or if it has to do with less experienced actors. And, you know, again, it was hard for me to kind of discern what was the weaker part of that. But I, but I did like the cinematography. I thought several times during the film, like, Oh, this is a beautiful shot. Oh, I love this framing. I love this, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that this is blocked. There was one long shot. Do you know the one I'm referring to? Which no, which one was it? It's kind of this long continuous shot with the FBI agent, and he. Oh um, yes, they're all. Yes. Yeah, I know which one? They're all kind of sitting around talking, and that was a scene where the dialogue definitely felt clunky. Where I heard, you know, just some. It, it felt really forced, like they repeat the same line twice in one sentence. Right. And, oh, when they're trying to figure out this killer. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's basically you. I can't see any 
real FBI agents talking the way that they were talking to each other. But the the FBI agent kind of like walks down the hallway and, and you've got this big long tracking shot. And I thought that was really cool. Like I love oh, yeah. the reveal of that and how that all played out. I thought that was awesome. And maybe I'll, I'll mention that a little bit more when we get to spoilers, but no, this is a film that I thought had some cool ideas. I actually really love the basic premise of the movie that we haven't revealed yet. And I, I think it doesn't quite work here. Like I would love to see this movie and all, although this did end up getting distribution through Lionsgate. Um, I know they're making a sequel to it and I'm actually very excited about that. I hope that sequel was funded by Lionsgate. I hope they get a little bit more money. Cause I, I really do think if they had a great screenplay and um, a, a little bit bigger budget, this is a fun idea for a Christmas slasher. I agree. I agree. And the, and the scene that the, there's a scene. And I don't think we get into spoilers here. There's a scene toward the end where somebody starts narrating. What was it? Mm-hmm. Was the night before Christmas at the right. same time, other things are, we're seeing them on screen, things happening. And it's almost like a montage of different things going on while this narration is happening. And we're getting, you know, hearing it as well, hearing what's going on as well. That was, could be my favorite scene in the movie. And I really liked how that was pulled off. Um, It's a shame that it's so late in the film. I mean, it's like the next to last scene, I think, in the movie. But I thought it was very um, skillfully handled. Uh, and just the way that they, they put those the, the cutting in and out together, I really like that. One other, I don't know if it's a criticism, but one kind of strange element is that the film is set in New Jersey, I believe. Mm-hmm. But it's clearly shot in Canada. The actors all have these Canadian accents, yeah, which yeah. I found extremely charming. Like, I loved the look of this little Canadian town. I love the Canadian accent. I just, you know, I just find it charming and right. I don't get why they said it in New Jersey. Like, just do it in Canada. Yeah, just said it in Canada. I mean, that's what they, I'm yeah. pretty sure Black Christmas was said in Canada. So, I mean, what the hell? Yeah. All right. Well, let's give ratings and recommendations and then talk about this a little more in depth because I do think that there is some interesting spoiler discussion uh-huh. to be had here. You want to? Yeah, I can. I, I can kick it off, honestly. And it's when we're going to get into the spoilers that I think. Um, a fair portion of my criticisms are gonna are gonna play out. Um, I'm with you. I thought it was an interesting idea. Uh, I did, um, uh, you know, uh, like some of the shots, uh, some of the cinematography. Well, the cinematography was good, um, and there were strong moments in the movie. However, for me, there were just a few more issues than strengths. I'm gonna have to say 4.5. And it's a low-priority rental. I mean, it's close to an avoid for me, but I'm going to go with a low-priority rental. Oh, wow. That's interesting, based on some other movies I've heard you talk about recently in our kind of private conversations. <laughs> but um, Yeah, for me, I liked it better than you. I There are so many bad Christmas horror movies out there. You know, I, I'm obsessed with Christmas horror movies. This is one of my favorite shows of the year. Last year, we talked about several killer Santa movies and the one movie where people were killing Santas, if you remember that. Uh, right. Don't open till Christmas. Right, yes. I gave that one a 3.5. <laughs> and, you know, and Santa's Slay, I gave that one a 4 instead of Void. 
Good Tidings, I think I gave a five and called the low priority rental. I think this is far better than Good Tidings uh, from 2016. I really love the iconic nature of the Santa and Mrs. Claus. I think they could do a lot with it. Did they do it in this movie? Mm, yeah, I think when they're on screen, they're great. Mm-hmm. I think they they are the best part of the movie. I think the deputy was fine. I think some of these other roles are really difficult to watch at times. And I think that's unfortunate. The the five girls at the bar and the conversations that was actually, no, not that one when they're at the mall Um, and it's it's the three girls. And then the one guy comes in and go, you know, he says, well, that's my job. Things like that. It's like, boy, this is, if this is not just people standing here reciting lines, you know, there was nothing yeah. natural about that conversation. A subset of the actors in this movie are actually in a comedy troupe. I know I, I was looking them up. They have a theater group, but I, I don't know if that I don't know if it's comedy or if it's just straight theater. But several of those uh, boyfriend girlfriend combinations are from that theater group, and um, I watched some of their other stuff online, and I thought they were better in that. And so I wasn't sure again if what the tone was supposed to be here. If it was supposed to be kind of tongue in cheek comedy in some of those scenes, those scenes would work better. Right. If it was supposed to be kind of goofy and cheesy, then I, then I was, I would be in on the joke and I would think it was funny, but the tone of the film, it comes across as kind of um, grim and serious, but I just, you know, I didn't think the supporting cast of this film was, too great. Some were fine. Yeah, and, yeah. but I think, I think the, there were a couple key people who couldn't carry the gravity that they needed to in order to, for this plot to pl- play out. And, and, and I don't think the plot was necessary to make this film enjoyable. You know, the kind of deeper backstory. I, I just didn't care as much about that as I did about the kind of, um, plot that was at the forefront right no i I think i think what what we figure out what's going on what the killers are up to uh, i mean what they're actually doing what they're what they're doing is more interesting than why they're doing it and it's just it's enough it's enough to carry the movie yeah i agree paul tanter is the director of this i'd like to see him get a little bit more money and take another shot at this world as i said i think i've seen online that they're shooting a sequel to this it says uh, on IMDb here, it says they're in pre-production twice upon a time at Christmas. So yeah. I, I'd watch that based on this. I I come in more of a six on this one, and I'd call it a rental recommendation. Again, just if you look at the field of Christmas slashers out there, like Good Tidings, this is a lot more enjoyable than that. Like And Santa's sleigh, that to me is ridiculous. Good Tidings is super grim. Mm-hmm. This is a more enjoyable watch if I'm looking for a film in this kind of range. Okay. So let's get into spoilers on this one. And if you guys want to skip over spoilers, check out the show notes at horrormoviepodcast.com and we'll leave the time codes in there so you can skip over it to the next section. It's the 12 days of Christmas, right? And the first thing I thought of was that scene from The Office. Sorry, guys. Whoever is giving me the 12 days of Christmas as my secret Santa, please stop. I can't take it anymore. My cat killed a turtle dove. The French hens have started pulling out my hair to make a nest. Please stop. What psycho would send that as a gift? 
I begged Dwight and Jim to give me Aaron for Secret Santa, and I decided to give Aaron the 12 days of Christmas. Is it my fault that the first eight days there's basically 30 birds? <laughs> and uh, that was just kind of the first thing that came to mind for me. That's funny. It was... It was at six geese a lane that I figured out what was going on. See, so we still had halfway to go. See, for me, I honestly picked it up when the agents are talking and they say we've had, you know, one, two, and four. Well, you got to find one. There's three out there. And then I remembered the name on the door. They were sure to show the name on the door for that third the Frenchins. one. The Frenchins. Yeah. So I said, oh, it's the 12 days of Christmas. Then once what happens with the agents and the ring fingers... The five of them, I said, okay, well, this is pretty obvious. They're going to pick oh, this pick this up pretty soon. And as I'm watching that, I'm, I find myself like almost screaming at the screen saying, how can you not see this? And, and look at where it started, yeah. where it started on the date. How can you not see what is going on here? And then they said, well, they... We just, um, there was, uh, what was it, the six uh, geese or whatever it was that were dead yeah. from, from this farmer. Oh, well, that's, what are you going to do? Uh, we don't got time for that. This The sheriff, how he got to this position, I have no idea. Because how, I, to me, it was, it was really obvious. <laughs> I think if the FBI agents lasted another day, they would have put it together, no problem. Well, do you, I mean, think about this happening in real life. Would you, you're not going to, in the movie world, it makes sense that, of course, this is what they're doing. It's a Christmas horror movie. If, you, if this is real life, you're not necessarily thinking, I bet our killer is like doing the 12 days of Christmas. You're not, that's not probably not your first thought. Well, I, it's not my first thought, but as it started to play out, like with the one, two, three, four, and then five yeah. with the ring fingers being taken off. But, I mean, if we're talking real life, in my real life, people don't walk around reciting, you know, talking blandly and reciting bad lines either. So, right. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of things with this movie that, that's with reality. You know, it, it's just not right. there. Um, I, I guess I was watching it straight at first. So I I just thought, okay, they've killed these people. I'm not sure why. I wasn't putting it together, honestly. And the the ring fingers, I I thought, oh, this is cool. Like, I, I I felt like it was going somewhere. I just had no idea where. The reason the geese stood out to me is it felt and much like the bird comment. And I didn't. I forgot you were British or whatever. Right. It felt it felt false. It felt um, contrived. Right. When the geese when the geese scene happened, and especially the swan scene, even more. It felt contrived, like oh, there were what was it, paper swans or, or toy swans in the swimming pool, right? Like that, huh? Like and and that's when it's just really like okay, much like the actual song, the Twelve Days of Christmas, that song can be a slog to oh, get. Oh yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And I sit there trying to figure yeah. out. I mean, I couldn't even remember the damn song because usually when yeah. it's on, I tune out because it is so annoying. <laughs> but. I was trying to think, okay, well, let's neg. And then when I saw they had the drum contest, like, okay, well, this is where it's going to end. Um, yeah. Uh, really You're cool. what, you were way ahead of me, man. I've, I feel actually dumb. No, I, I mean, I, I, and I understand. I mean, I, I do understand because it's not like they were really selling it either, and that's understandable too. But the clues that they were giving, like the sh like showing the door. Um, I thought it yeah. was also kind of interesting too when – 
um, when the deputy walked into that house and discovered the dead bodies. Uh, first yeah. off, I don't know if you saw, but the girl blinked. Um, I noticed that with the with the birds at the bar in the flashback, okay. one of the actresses looked like she's giggling. Oh, okay. But like during her death scene, like it felt really like high school kids made a movie. Yeah, and, and and that's what I kind of got for this. But the drummer's drumming is another one of those things where when I first hear that they're going to like this drum party, I think. And that's a really specific subculture. Yeah, it really is. They're showing off. It really is. For Christmas Eve, on Christmas yeah. Eve, come and listen to drums. <laughs> you yeah. know, which I again, it's obvious when you realize what the plot is, but I didn't, and so it just felt like this really. They felt like really strange choices, yeah. you know, until yeah. I realized what was going on. I'm like, man, this is such a strange movie. Honestly, I kind of enjoyed that part of it. And I really, like I say, I would love to see a movie that was pitting the detectives against these killers. And we're getting half the movie with the killers committing these crimes, half the detectives. And I think you could obscure their pattern a little bit more, or maybe you don't obscure it and you just stick with it. Like, Hey, we're doing the 12 days of Christmas. You better find us before we finish our sleigh, you know, like I would like, yes. I would watch that movie. If as long as, but let's be honest, th- there's a couple days there where, okay, well they kill, I don't know. I can't remember if they killed the geese. I'm guessing they killed the geese or no. And, yeah. and then, and then the thing, the swans was, it was a kidnapping. It's almost as if the crimes were not escalating. They were getting escalating. kinder or something like they were, it, it, <laughs> it wasn't, it was, yeah, it, it was getting better as it went along. Yeah, and the sheriff even yeah. bro- even drew attention to it. Said, "Oh, well, could have been people instead of these instead of these uh, geese or whatever, you know." And then, uh, you know, th- things like that. Also, and I didn't have to save this for the spoilers. This isn't necessarily a spoiler, but is there any mayor in any movie that looks less like a mayor than the guy <laughs> in this movie? This guy looks like he could have been he could have been a vagrant on the side of the road. And I well, think you would have remember been, yeah. we are in Canada. I don't know if you know, or if you're familiar with Toronto's mayor that was, you know, well, true. That's a problem. That's true. Toronto. Although it's set in New Jersey. I don't know if this right. guy would have got elected in New Jersey. Yeah. He, although again, uh, parks and recreation, I could see him being on the city council okay. in, in, uh, in that town. I think that storyline of a killer carrying out the 12 days of Christmas and we have to stop them and they're dressed up like Santa Claus. That's fun. Sure. As a premise. I think what you have here though, is this attempt to kind of make the film a little bit, a level deeper with kind of a scream three or scream four Sydney Prescott situation where, you know, all these killings are happening because of you and you have to figure out why it's happening. And I, you know, I just don't think that, the performance was strong enough, you know, and that storyline wasn't necessary enough to even make me care at all about that. Right. I agree. And it's interesting how the daughter does a quick internet search and finds out everything about her mother and her (laughs) first husband. Meanwhile, the cops have none of this information and she was clearly evading, you know, when the mother was there, she was clearly evading the questions. The sheriff was like, but I'm not done yet. And they just march out. That that's yeah. a red flag right there. It's like, hey, they're hiding something, or this woman's hiding something. And the minute that the the, the mayor said, "I'm going to my to the strip club for my son's bachelor party," I said, "Well, he's dead." 
I didn't even know how yeah. it was going to fit into the 12 days of Christmas. I knew he was dead. I knew that that was where I he mean, was going to meet his end. But see, and it's lines like that that make me think this is intended to be funny. Right. Because, the, it, and wasn't there even a weirder perverted line, like, I want to go see my niece's dancing or something oh, weird like that? my niece's dancing, yeah, it was really, really out there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But you think, like, those lines are so insane that you think, well, this has got to be intended to make me laugh. Like, I did laugh, mm-hmm. you know? But then there are other lines that, yeah, just seemed kind of generic. And so, I don't know, it was I was unsure. Right. So, I mean, to me, that was the biggest problem with the film, you know, is, uh, you know, execution. And I don't I don't necessarily blame the director, but I do think it was either the screenwriting or the performances or maybe a little bit of right. both. For me, it was the frustration of saying, come on, you know, I mean, uh, when it got to the ducks and then at one point it was even just like the vandalizing milk machines, <laughs> you know, you've got the, I can I can yeah. just picture Santa and 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 Mrs. Claus, these killers, these sadistic killers, you know, beating up some milk machines. You think as it's going on that wow, the next day is going to be worse, and the next day is going to be worse than that, and the next day is going to be worse than that. Okay, yes, it fits into the twelve days of Christmas, but who cares? Who gives a damn about these milk machines? Who gives you know? Who cares about the little yeah. toy swans in the pool? I mean, yeah. Yeah, they 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 needed to be more creative and brutal with their execution of the twelve days of Christmas. Right, you have to think like you're these killers, you know, and they're, you know, I don't know. I I would actually like to write a story like this because I think there's a lot of fun to be had here. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, I, hope, I agree. I hope and that the sequel has a little more. It, it would be interesting, and it would be interesting to see, like you said, with a little bit more money behind it, maybe a little bit of a better cast. This time around, I don't know that you have to replace Santa and Mrs. Claus. I thought they were fine, but it would be. I thought they were excellent. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it'd be interesting to see them come back, maybe with a few, you know, some better actors. It'll be kind of cool to see what they do come up with. Um, and I like the title "Once Upon a Time at Christmas." That's kind of a nod to you know the old uh, spaghetti westerns yeah. and Sergio Leone and things like that. I thought that was pretty cool. <sighs> Well, I'd love to hear our audience's reaction to this one if you've seen it. Um, I think we both said rental. I was a little more um, excited about the rental than you were. But, yeah, congratulations, I think, to Simon Phillips and Sayla Dakuda. I don't know if that's her name. That looks like a Dutch name, but Sayla Dakuda, if it's Dutch. Um, I thought they were really cool. Yeah. I, th- I think they could have created horror icons, and you know, and I and I hope that uh, it gets better on the second outing. Yep. For them. I agree. So once upon a time at Christmas is available on DVD and I think Blu-ray, you can also watch it for a five ninety nine digital rental on Amazon. I'm sure it's other places as well, probably cheaper than Amazon, but uh, yeah, that's our review of once upon a time at Christmas. And at this point in the show, here comes Jay of the dead. <laughs> Hey y'all, I'm like the the drunk uncle that shows up late to the Christmas party um, smelling of eggnog and um, those Vienna sausages. <laughs> <laughs> That's me <laughs> crashing the party. Sorry. How's your holiday going? <laughs> oh, it's a blast. Merry Christmas to everyone out there. And um, if you're not a Christmas celebrator, whatever you celebrate, happy that to you. 
And um, yeah, I'm having a good time, and I'm grateful to be here on Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. So I understand we're going to be talking about kind of a controversial film next. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned before, the listeners chose Once Upon a Time at Christmas for the film we would review this mm-hmm. episode. But a close second was Red Christmas. And when, you know, when the news broke that we were doing Once Upon a Time at Christmas, there were definitely some people that had opinions about, uh, no, you know, you have to talk about these this crazy movie, Red Christmas. And I if you if you can indulge me for a second, I'm going to look uh, at some of the listeners Twitter comments here because <laughs> please do. I'm very excited about this because um, there was a lot of arguing back and forth here because I just want to give a little spoiler alert for Jay's opinion. I am pro Red Christmas, so I'm here ready to fight. Good gravy. <laughs> I loved it. I actually loved it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Aren't there a number of films weirdly titled Red Christmas right now? Yeah, there's what's one of those things like on Amazon. There's one that's streaming for free, but it is not this movie. (laughs) Right. This is the writer director Craig Anderson's film Red Christmas. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Yes. All right. So Greg Bench, the gray man. Yes. He says Australian cookie cutter slasher. And that's the, that's the first thing I have to disagree with cookie cutter. This is anything but cookie cutter. This is one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. Right. Right. But Greg goes on. He said, all right. Slashings, subpar acting, except for D Wallace and Jerry predictable story and twist. Nothing redeeming that I can agree with. Nothing redeeming. Gray man says four out of 10 avoid unless you're a holiday horror or slasher completist. And then there was a little bit of bickering back and forth. Sal felt very differently about the movie than, than Greg, and they're both Toledo listeners, so we had to pit them against each other, of course. Of course, know. that's how we do. So Sal says, although clearly low budget, this packs fun kills, some creepiness and emotion into a surprisingly fun film. Killer comes close to being laughable, but ends up creeping me out more than anything else. 6.5 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Nice. But then Juan jumps in and says, I gave it an eight. Yes. <laughs> I love you, Juan. Juan, I love you. I love it. <laughs> because it has so much heart and it does more interesting and unique things than most films of its ilk. There you go. There you go. And, and Juan will be very disgruntled to find that we are in agreement. You're agreeing with Jay of the Dead, Juan. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It really is. Whereas uh, the gray man knocked over my eggnog and uh, we'll see if he gets coal in his stocking. Take that gray man. Eric Yvonne says seven out of 10, even though there are some awful editing and directing choices, more good to be found than bad. Highly enjoyable despite its flaws. Again, enjoyable is not a word I would use for this movie, but okay. Jody Horror Guy says, I gave it a six myself, but I enjoyed it more than I scored it, which I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I get I get that because he felt like, you know, technically the execution and everything, it was about a six for him. But he had more fun, got more entertainment value out of it than that six would indicate. <laughs> OK, and then <laughs> this will be the last one. I'm sorry. Let me just give me one second. Dino says referring to our poll. I got to say, I'm a little disappointed with these results. 
definitely not a knock against the winner. I just wanted to hear Josh's reaction to one of the more offensive, just plain wrong films I've seen in recent memory. <laughs> yes. Actually, from what I've just read, people are way kinder to this film than I'm about to be, because I think this is one of the sickest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> well, it's a horror film. It's a horror film, and it's supposed to be um, subversive and offensive and upsetting. I mean, that's that's the point. Cause, check, check, check. Yes, yeah, I mean, it, it made me feel uncomfortable, too, so I agree with all of that. Come on in. Oh, Jenny, my parents sister. It's in the oven. Presents in 15 minutes. This year, I thought before we opened presents, it would be nice if we went around and said what we're grateful for. Mm. You're on the clock, buddy. This is written and directed by Craig Anderson, as we have said. And it's about this, um, well, it's an Australian film as well. And it's it's set in Australia. Although you really can't tell that as much, right? Um, Not necessarily. And it's about a mother. Other than it's sunny in the wintertime. (laughs) Yeah, other than that. Yeah, it's not like they show the toilet flush and it's going the opposite direction. No, it should (laughs) have. I know, right? Missed opportunity that, every that, time. That would have been that would have been the dead giveaway. <laughs> so not, that, not the accents <laughs> or the fact they said we're in Australia. It's the toilet. That that's would have that's thank you. And most importantly, that would have really elevated the film. Uh, well, <laughs> I think it would have been par for the course with the film. But anyway, it's about this mom played by D. Wallace. Yes, D. Wallace, and um, she has assembled her family together on Christmas Day. So here is a film set on Christmas Day. And uh, what happens is this uh, stranger (laughs) comes calling and uh, as IMDb's premise says, is hell-bent on tearing them apart. And then I would add, with an axe. (laughs) So... So this was released um, supposedly in the in the U.S. in like August of 2017, but then it hit DVD and VOD like on the internet in October of 2017. And I'm thankful that people brought this up and brought it to my attention because, um, you know, I really like this yeah. film. This was actually screening at the Tower Theater in Salt Lake City during the MPN meetup event when we went and saw Friday the 13th uh, special screenings. This was the movie that was regularly in that theater oh man i i mean i enjoyed the friday the 13th stuff of course but it would have been amazing to see this with the community that would have been interesting yeah yes so one thing that is offensive to me hollywood is really pretty infamous for doing this i mean you know i celebrate christmas christmas so i'm a christian and and so in this (laughs) film they depict christian's in this film as extremists. But anyways, they well, not only that, they really try to have their cake and eat it too. When right. <laughs> criticizing Christians, because they have, you know, the, the extremist Christians who are kind of at the heart of the story, but then you also have two main characters who are Christians who are at once extremely prudish and also 
total hypocrites. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, so, so in terms of like, if you're looking at, okay, what is the subtext here? The message of this film? I mean, it's brutally like, it's, it's, it's really tough on Christians. So yeah, I mean, that's, I, I'm not a super sensitive person usually, but yeah, I mean, I felt that I felt the digs and stuff, but anyways, there's this abortion clinic protest. And of course there's a bombing and this is all like, you know, inciting incident, almost like backstory, and and the prior then, evil. Yes, it is the prior evil, indeed. Yeah, and and the way that scene ends, which I won't, even though it's at the beginning, I don't want to spoil this for people. But the way that ends is very disturbing to me, and 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 it's the, <laughs> I mean, it's it's very unsettling. I was so uncomfortable, and I was like, you know what, I am not liking this movie. I'm not enjoying it. It's afflicting me. And I felt really like it was in my face. And then it cuts to 20 years later and it's Christmas day, right? Do you guys have any other thoughts about that opening? I mean, my question after finishing the film was, was that even necessary? Because you're right. I didn't feel like it was what I signed up for. It didn't feel like a Christmas movie. It was pretty long for what it was. And I just thought, I felt like it wasn't necessary. I felt like you get all the information that you need later on in the movie. I think, I think it is necessary, even though okay. I that didn't like it. And the reason why is because I think it, it really fuels the way it's depicted at least is, is so reprehensible and upsetting. You know, you can, you can sympathize to some extent, not, not wholly of course, but you have some degree of sympathy with our quote unquote monster. That's oh, I, to- I think I think absolutely you do, and I think my sympathy for the monster only grows throughout the film. I think it gets more and more sympathetic as the film goes on. Really, like, because for me, like the sympathy kind of stops at about the halfway point. <laughs> if you put yourself in the shoes mm-hmm. of the antagonists, right? I think this is the film that really justifies. That character's, I mean, look at the character physically. Think about the life this character must have led before this movie begins. Mm-hmm. Pretty, I mean, it's up there with Jason Voorhees drowning and living at the bottom of a lake, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Dave, we haven't heard from you yet. What are you, what are your thoughts about the opening of this film? Um, it, it, uh... Yeah, I, I got the same vibe. I got I got the same vibe that this was going to sort of be a uh, a thump of religion. Um, it didn't pull me out of the movie or anything, though. I was certainly willing to wait and see where it was going to go, mm-hmm. and it was a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, when you saw the payoff of that opening scene. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about it. And and isn't that interesting though? The whole concept of a Christmas horror film in general, we've talked about this many times, the, the juxtaposition from this happy time of peace. It's to celebrate what we Christians call the birth of the, the Prince of Peace, you know, and then that's juxtaposed with horror that's happening. And so I, I almost feel like Craig Anderson, the filmmaker, was really up in the face of, <laughs> because the Christmas setting, in terms of a Christmas horror movie, the Christmas is prevalent in this and especially the Christmas lights. The, the lighting is excellent. We get lots of Christmas lights throughout yeah, it's this. It's really only the Australian setting that, for me, kept it from feeling completely Christmas. In, in a lot of ways, this is one of the most Christmassy Christmas horror movies I've seen. It really <laughs> has that feeling of family and, and all the things you'd see right. in a regular 
Christmas movie. But okay, let me mm-hmm. let me just say this, Jason. So yeah, I, as you know, this is one of my favorite shows of the year. Oh yeah, and it's the Christmas season. My kids are uh, out of school, and you know I'm doing weird work hours, and so I've been listening to back to our Christmas episodes. Uh, you know, the Ghosts of Christmas Past, mm-hmm. and I re-listened to our discussion about Christmas Evil. Yeah, which is one of my favorite discussions that you and I have ever had, to be honest. Awesome. Um, and in that discussion, you pointed out, isn't it interesting? And actually it may have been during our review of scent, but it was the same episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't it interesting that all of these Christmas horror movies, they all focus on Santa Claus to a large degree. It's, it's never about Christ, which is at the heart of the Christmas celebration. Mm-hmm. I, this is a movie that, as you've mentioned many times, kind of focuses on these Christian um, themes throughout. And there's a lot of Christianity here from our main character who appears to be kind of like a leper, (laughs) you know, or has like a leprous kind of appearance to, as you've mentioned, all the abortion stuff to our, our Christian protagonists to some degree. And, And I couldn't tell, to be honest, you know, you've mentioned it pokes fun at, the Christians in the film, but isn't it kind of an anti-abortion film at the same time? Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I don't know that the film takes a hard line stance on one or the other, or at least it, it's created its own moral world for this movie, but it's really getting to the heart of um, Christmas in a way that not a lot of Christmas horror movies do. Well said. Yeah, I agree. And I think though, there's something interesting about that. I mean, to the extent, because you remember how they would um, argue, like critics would argue, and I'm talking like back in the day, in the earlier days of horror, they would say, um, that is a reprehensible genre. It shows people having sex and and it's immoral and blah, blah, blah. And then a lot of the, the people who defend horror would often say, actually, it's quite moral because the people who have sex always get killed. There's a comeuppance. The naughty people are punished. And so in that same way, I mean, we could say this is an anti-abortion film. There's so much sympathy for the monster, for the killer, that still they're ultimately you know, being punished or at least the person in particular who's responsible for the abortion situation is being punished. Yeah. So I think that's happening. But, but, but there's one other thing about what you said, there's actually a line. I wrote it down in here because it made me laugh. Okay. So you've got this family, (laughs) they're celebrating Christmas clearly. And, you know, one assumes that if somebody celebrates Christmas, at least somewhere in there, there must be some sort of Christian background, maybe, maybe. So it's ironic because <laughs> the uh, lady complains, oh, that crazy Christians come back. <laughs> they actually say that, that crazy Christian is back. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, honestly, I think uh, Christmas, at least in the United States, and it looks like in Australia, is just kind of part of our, our culture, whether you're Christian or not. I mean, I know Jewish families that have Christmas trees this time of year, just because, you know, it's fun to have a Christmas tree. And I know atheists who celebrate Christmas and exchange gifts. I wasn't aware of that, but that's interesting. That's very fascinating. This is ultimately, this is a slasher film, right? I mean, this, and and let's talk about the slasher killer. You, you've described like 
this kind of a leprosy type of, because we really don't see, I mean, this, this person is kind of bandaged up and then wearing that, that ghost of Christmas yet to come cloak, like the grim reaper cloak. And I have to agree with, um, who was it? Sal. Um, I think that that character, the killer, the appearance and the voice, the voice of that character is creepy. This, this film genuinely creeps me out. Like I yeah. actually felt uneasy and unsettled by it. It it does, but it all I mean it also tries to it goes back and forth with this character. Um you know from the character's name is Cletus. Cletus, yeah, from from killer to sympathetic. Um and and it does go back and forth a few times with that. Um not that at any point did we want to not that at any point did we find ourselves on on Cletus's side, as it were, like that we're rooting for Cletus. But by the same token, the movie does sort of, it's very, it's just interesting the way that they take this character. I thought, because they, they make him, um, they make him the monster and then they, they sort of make him the victim, uh, at at different intervals throughout the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's both. He has kind of a forced gump, Cadence to his speech. He's a Jenny. Right. <laughs> yeah. thing going on. He, he does. <laughs> the way he talks in Australian. He's, he's Forrest Gump with an axe is what he is. Yeah. Right. But the crazy thing thought. about it is, as Jay mentioned, he's, he's introduced. He looks like the Grim Reaper. And, he, but the crazy thing about that is he's introduced in broad daylight to our characters in a non-threatening, um, manner where they're actually just having a regular conversation with this guy. Imagine in another slasher, you know, someone in scream talking to the ghost face killer or in Friday the 13th part three, talking to Jason Voorhees. It's kind of that thing. The killer is sitting on a couch with our main characters, having a normal conversation, quote unquote, normal conversation (laughs) dressed as the grim reaper. And, you know, visibly decaying in front of their eyes. It's a pretty bizarre scene and it had my interest. And that sounds dumb probably to the listeners who haven't seen it, but actually it it works in this situation. And, and it's because number one, it's um, Christmas day and they're feeling uh, particularly uh, charitable. It's like they let in this stranger and clearly there's something wrong with this person. Right. Um, but, but yeah, there's a, there's a definite Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like kind of like incredible Hulk type of, um, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. I mean, it's like, because we see in a previous scene that this, this character is otherwise pretty peaceful unless the character is provoked and then it's, um, serious business. Into the old ultraviolence. <laughs> <laughs> ultraviolence. Yeah. And I, and, and I kind of like that because I relate to that a little bit, like in, in a Joe Pesci sort of way, like in, <laughs> in the mafia movies, right? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I hear you. I mean, I don't know. That, I agree. I, agree. I don't know why you relate to it so much. It's scary, but I, I get, I get what you're saying. It's what I was kind of sitting back and wondering. No, it, it, it's like, I mean, I don't want to chop anybody in half. But it's like, I, I'm a nice guy to people like 99% of the time. And then when somebody's like a freaking jerk to me, it's like, hey, universe, I'm nice to people 99% of the time. That person there is a total a-hole. 
I want to chop them in half. No, just kidding. But, but, but so, so like there's a little bit of that, like angst, I think that I relate to with this character. Oh, I, I relate to this character completely. And I, you know, I don't feel bad about seeing that. I think it's a Phantom of the Opera, Hunchback of Notre Dame Mm -hmm. kind of thing. We've got this freak who's wreaking havoc upon others, but you understand why, like there's this person is in, a lot of pain and has not been treated well by society at large. And so, and you know, has lived in an extraordinary situation that none of us can really relate to. And so of course is lashing out in a way that, um, you know, is not appropriate by society standards. And I honestly, I think casting D Wallace was brilliant because I think in some ways, and of course her character as written, uh, is also very sympathetic what she has gone through. She, you know, she doesn't deserve what happens to her mm-hmm. uh, either, but I think her casting is so brilliant because otherwise it would be very easy to root for the killer in this movie because a lot of these characters are not likable. And I think D Wallace is so endlessly likable and so iconic that you just can't help but root for her despite everything that goes down, you know? So I agree. I think honestly, if it weren't D Wallace, I might be rooting for Cletus in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> in that sick kind of way where you're like asking yourself, why am I rooting for this killer? <laughs> as things are revealed in the film, I root for more and more. As I mentioned, you know, there's a, there's a storyline that I don't want to talk about overtly. Maybe we could do a very quick spoiler discussion, but the Jerry character is kind of involved in the evolution of this character. And when we see, Jerry's reaction toward the end of the film, I start really feeling for Cletus in the same way. Uh, you know, Jerry's a character we've grown to love. And as you know, we start relating and you know, we've been relating to him. And so to see him kind of go through some of the same things that Cletus goes through, I, I all of a sudden I understand Cletus a lot more as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's well said. Yeah. So there are two things I want to tell people as well. Like, um, Let's talk about the the budget to this because we've had people mention on Twitter it is low budget and that's true. And and that's the thing. When you're a horror fan, as all of us are, sometimes we have to uh, you know, be willing to work with these filmmakers who they they just didn't have the means to make a, a million dollar film. You know what I mean? It's like I I mean I don't know how much this cost, but it doesn't. It, you can tell it has that sheen of a very low budget kind of thing. Like after the opening and it goes 20 years later and you see this Christmas party, it feels like <clears throat> somebody filmed this at a friend's house on the weekend or something, you know? So so I was like, oh, I kind of hate this when movies look like this, you know? And I was like, you know, a little bit resistant. But then the heart is there when you see, okay, this is actually a horror story. I can see in the storytelling there is genuine horror to be found here. And then the kills, while those are not always convincing, of course, I think that the filmmakers are going to great lengths to try to make it extreme and upsetting. No, yeah, they are absolutely going to lengths to make it extreme and upsetting, and I I resent them for it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... As much as there were this, you know, the unlikable characters in this movie, and you and you do, you get that. I mean, it's a family unit, and it's a very uh, 
in a way, sort of dysfunctional family unit because you have the one daughter and her husband who are, they're very selfish. Um, and she's pregnant. Then you have the, um, the, the one daughter who's gone, you know, she's, she's married to the Reverend and, and very, uh, sort of prudish. She comes in dressed, uh, in that way. But yet for some reason, I still thought they kind of worked as a family unit, you know? And, and even though you don't like them all the time, there was something, there was something interesting about the dynamic there. Even even yeah. the ones that are that are over the top, I thought. You well, know, I think the I th- over the top of likability fits with the slasher genre, and the kind of dysfunctional family fits with the Christmas movie dynamic as well. I, definitely, and then you do have the character of, of Jerry there, um, who I thought he was one of the more likable characters in the movie, if not right up there with, like you were saying, D. Wallace. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the way that they sort of develop his character. He's one of the bravest of the group. He's just a very well portrayed and a very likable character. And as portrayed by Gerard Odwire. Okay, thank you. I was I was trying to go look up the name myself. Very good. But something about the whole the family as a whole that I don't know, it just it did work for me. I did buy it as I'm buying this group as a family. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it reminds me a lot of a really good Christmas, not a lot, but it reminds me of a really good Christmas family type drama comedy, The Family Stone. Have you guys seen that? It's not horror, of course, but. I don't think so. Oh, really? I've seen that one either. Oh, yeah. I highly recommend that to you guys. Um, It's from 2005. It's a great movie, actually. I, I love it a ton. But anyway, it reminds me of that dynamic where you've got these people who are coming together. The mom is really trying to have a special Christmas experience to get everybody together. And of course, like there are lots of like problems under the surface. And then you learn about more of these problems as the conflict unfolds. I, I like how you guys are talking about the family dynamic because I think that is an important part of this film. Yeah, I agree. So, um... Josh, you you seem to have like a strong um, dislike for this film, and yep, and and and, <laughs> and after talking with you so far, I mean, I think, I mean, we've got a, a siege narrative here very frequently. We've got a slasher. We've got a Christmas horror movie. I mean, uh, I'm not seeing what you what you really don't like about it. Let's let's hear that stuff. Okay, I mean, there are nitpicky things like you mentioned with the kind of the look and look of the film. It does feel kind of low budget, uh, you know, in terms of Christmas. It just doesn't feel like it, I don't really feel Christmassy. Like it feels it has the trappings of Christmas, but doesn't actually feel Christmassy to me. Um, there are, you know, the elements of the killer being in the daylight. I know you like your horror in the daylight, but I really did not feel like it worked. It worked way better than it should have and way better than I thought it was going to, but it just, I mean, it is outlandish and, you know, and that's kind of the point, I guess, but I, it didn't appeal to me. The real reason that this doesn't appeal to me is a spoiler. I mean, in my opinion, it's a, it's a spoiler. We've, we've danced around it for the last 20 minutes, but it is a spoiler. And I would just say that this film, in my opinion, is, extremely mean-spirited it's it's repugnant 
offensive. <laughs> it is. It, it is offensive. Offensive. And I think it would be one thing if it was a serious horror film that was really, you know, going for the jugular and had something to say. I again, I could almost, even though it doesn't, you know, it doesn't line up with any particular worldview. It, you know, whether liberal or conservative, I could get behind either if it was if it was kind of going hard in that direction and did it well. But you know, when I look up the director. You know, Craig Anderson, he's a comedy guy and all of his other work is in comedy. And he has described this film as a as like a black comedy. And then that just seems insane to me. It's it's, it's a level of mean spiritedness that I don't know for me is just not entertaining. It's uh, okay. kind of disgusting. I, I so mean, I, I will I will definitely agree that the subject matter and the way it's approached does not lend itself toward any sort of comedic uh, interpretation. I didn't look at it as a comedy either. But then you get um, some of these slasher kills. You know, there's a, I don't even know what it is. Is it a, an anchor <laughs> with a big <laughs> yeah, chain on it? Very, that was a very strange uh, mm-hmm. weapon. There's what seems to be a giant bear trap. They're goofy kills. Like, you know, they're not to be taken seriously. They're kind of cool and funny in that moment. But again, within the context of the film where we're dealing with such grim material, uh, it just felt disrespectful. And, and I think we're especially where the Jerry character goes. I, I like his turn and the film almost won me over in Jerry's big moment, but then where it goes with Jerry and, and how exploitative the film ultimately is mm-hmm. as we start to reveal layers. I just think it's unconscionable. Uh, to some degree. I mean, I, I can, uh, I can appreciate all of that. I mean, everything that you just said, especially like if we're being sensitive and mindful to, you know, people in general, like other people, then I think, yes, yes, I agree. And, and we, we all <laughs> have, have to come to terms with, or at least, um, sneer at or, or disapprove of or whatever the fact that horror is often um let's see reprehensible in that way right i mean so I, i'm with you but i want to say like and i'm not, i'm i think i can dance around this spoiler are are you specifically referring to characteristics of um the killer that we learn about later in the film things that we learn yeah. about the killer and, yeah, I just find that so exploitative that um but but and, and it's and, not just that it exists, it's the way that it's handled. Like when when it's approached through D Wallace's backstory, that feels okay to me and especially how Jerry reacts to it, that feels okay to me. But within the context of this, you know, really brutal slasher kills that are that are meant to almost be laughed at. I don't know. Well, it's unless just, I unless I missed something I I didn't pick up that the film was ever saying that because of these traits or characteristics, we have a a killer or a monster, right? I mean, I I just I mean I didn't pick that up, but maybe I missed it altogether. Did did the film ever suggest that that because of this trait or this characteristic or what have you, we're not saying what it is that that this is a killer. This is a monster. I, I think it does. I mean, you could definitely argue it. I think it's arguable, but I do think it does. It's certainly the inception point for why the prior evil took place. That's anyway. that. That's true. Yeah. And that's, that's very um, heartbreaking. But, but then I also got the, I also was given the feeling that this person 
or that Cletus then was um, uh, raised by a uh, a very angry sort of like like we were talking about somebody who had fundamentalist. Had, yes, mm-hmm. a fundamentalist. Which I looked at it more that that might have been what mm-hmm. what pushed him over. Yeah, but I don't buy that because Cletus talks about you know my father believed in punishment. I believe in love, and I believe in you know giving people another chance. And that that chance, the Christian hand that is extended to him initially to be welcomed into the home, is shoved back in his face multiple times into extreme degrees as the film continues. You know? mm-hmm. I looked at that as more as to why he was honestly, I did even with him saying my father was for vengeance time for love. Yes. But he lived 20 years with vengeance, mm-hmm. you know? So, so he was, he was under that for a long time. And, and maybe that's, I don't know. I, I that's what yeah. I was looking at that, that. I looked at it more that as, as that was that than any condition from birth. Um, you don't think that, that his that, condition had something to do with this is minor spoiling guys. I apologize. Hate doing this. Don't you think that's the reason he was not able to kind of reason and, and kind of no, um, but the reason, the reason why, because I think, I think because the film provides an antithesis of that someone um, there, there's a similar character but that character we see is where that character goes that character has this very similar reaction hmm. yeah i just hmm. yeah it's it's an interesting debate and <laughs> it's interesting in the film hmm. and i could see what you're That's saying true. you know yeah I, I see what you're saying too because the, i think that one reaction does sort of throw the whole thing it throws it off balance in a way even for that character and for um even Cletus is sort of, uh, yeah, I see. I see. And maybe I that the movie is not trying to say anything specific about the issues that it's playing with is part of the problem in terms of us being able to kind of decide what it's saying. I don't think it's, it's not trying to make a statement necessarily, but I think inadvertently it makes some really offensive statements. Yeah. Know? Well, I'll definitely give you that. I agree with that a hundred percent, but um, okay. No, that's fair enough. I mean, I do think it shows that, when people are put in this dire circumstance, I mean, the D Wallace character, I mean, she gets pretty ferocious and um, bloodthirsty as well. I mean, just it, that's what people would do in a fight or flight situation if they turn to fight. I'm just saying. So yeah, but I don't like her character in that, those moments either. Again, if it weren't, if it wasn't D Wallace, I would be rooting against that character. Yeah, I'm just saying that when somebody is pushed, that you know, that, you know, they can turn into monstrosity. But um, right. so anyway, no, that's a that's really fun to discuss that, and I hope that this is intriguing people enough to watch it. But what you were saying about the kills, um, I agree that the kills are pretty. <laughs> they're they're a tiny bit over the top. Just a little bit, but I think that what you have here, my belief is that this is a filmmaker who's like, hey, slashers are fun, and if the kills are crazy and they use crazy implements, then that's even more fun. And so I, and plus we had some budget limitations. And so I think that it was actually a kind of an, a wise, or at least, you know, a kind of a nice little risk to take where it's like, okay, um, these kills are not going to be a hundred percent realistic, 
But if I ramp it up a little bit and make them a little bit wild, then people might dig that enough to, you know, kind of see past it. And that's how they worked for me personally. Yeah. I mean, they were good kills from an 80s slasher perspective. Mm-hmm. Amazing kills. Yeah. To, to, to some degree. There, there was one in the kitchen, one of the craziest, awesomest kills I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. One in the driveway, one of the craziest, awesomest kills I've ever seen. If we're just talking... 80s slasher territory. Mm-hmm. If I had right, seen right. this in an 80s movie, I'd be like, what? Wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Th- it takes the comedic, I guess it's just the subject matter doesn't mesh with that tone for me. I think that's what is, and, it, and you know, and I think the film does go out of its way to be mean spirited at the end, but even just the inclusion of that tone within the subject matter we're dealing with to me just seems a little ugly, you know? Mm hmm. Well, it's the Joe Pesci thing. I mean, I mentioned that like in in jest earlier, but I really do think like so anybody who's seen Goodfellas, right? I mean, he's <laughs> I just love his character because he is so easily provoked and when he's provoked, I mean, his reaction, what's that called? How do people phrase that when it's um not an equal um reaction? A disproportionate response. That's what okay. it is. So yeah, like when when Joe Pesci, when his character is uh, afflicted or even the tiniest bit annoyed, I mean he he resorts to extreme violence and has a disproportionate response to that. And that's what we see in this character here too. And I think yeah. that kind of works because the character has been so downtrodden and afflicted. Yeah, but the style of the kills really are the most extreme end of what we would have seen in the eighties. Some of them feel very comedic, like almost like a hot fuzz style gore scenes. You know, it just I don't know, just uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I could I could see what you're saying. I agree. I mean, I can appreciate where you're coming from. What about this though? Here's something I want to love and admire about this film. I already mentioned the lighting, and I am nuts about the Christmas lighting because they're going around this house and they just have the colorful lights on. Or like a whole room will be green or a whole room will be red. And I love that. But I also like the use of the Christmas carols. And and they play in the background in various places. They play various um, Christmas carols that are a little less popular. They're not like, you know, Silent Night and all that stuff. Like they play Good King Wenceslas, <laughs> however they say that. And, and that happens. I don't think that's how you say it. <laughs> how, how do you say it? Wenceslas. Uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was Wenceslas. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I always mispronounce it. Okay. Good King Wenceslas. Yeah. So that that Christmas carol happens during a, a a kill that happens inside of a car, which is a little bit unsettling, especially with Good King Wenceslas playing in the background, right? Because um that that Christmas carol in and of itself is kind of like this good Samaritan type of message, but okay, let me, let me just, let me break it on. Worcestershire sire sauce. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let me break, let me break it down right here. I'll tell you my favorite aspect of this horror film. And I think that for this reason, horror movie podcast listeners, everybody should see this and remember it. And this is why I'm, I'm ready to bust it here. What we have here in this film is a very rare and special thing. And the first kill that happens to a family member at this this party house, when when the guest, when the people see and encounter the aftermath and realize that, 
hey, our family member has been brutally murdered, like just horrifically murdered. Their reaction to that is what I think real people would act like. It's fairly, I mean, it's it's realistic to me. And, and there is utter chaos and, and sheer terror. And they're screaming and running around and panicking. And um, I'm not doing it any justice by describing it. But when I saw it in the film, I'm like, there it is. I've been looking for that for so many years. Because usually in a slasher, it's like, they'll come upon a body. They'll scream. And be like, ah, and then like move on. And yeah, it's, well, our friends are dead, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Our, our friend is dead, but hold on, I got a joke for you here. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> but not in this film. In this film, it's treated like it's real, and, and I bought it, and that's my that's probably my favorite aspect of this film, and it really works. So I hope people will check it out, at least and for I that. Will agree, I will agree with you on that one, and I know the moment you're talking about. That is, you know, you have this family that's sort of bickering, back and forth with each other and and they're not all getting along. But at that moment, they all have the same genuine reaction Mm -hmm. to what has happened. And I do agree. I do think it's, it's, it's genuine. And I do think that that's how people, it did adequately show how people would react in that situation. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I just want to tell the listeners here, I think I'm probably the highest on this. So I'm going to I'm going to like observe our 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 little respect for the film rule that we yeah. do and I'm going to go last. So Wolfman Josh, why don't you go first with your final thoughts and ratings? Okay. I mean, my final thoughts, I'm just going to reread Dino's tweet here. <laughs> One of the more offensive, just plain wrong films I've seen in recent memory. <laughs> uh I give it a point for D Wallace. Give a half a point for the cool location. I give it half a point for pulling off something that seems like it would have been very hard to do. I give it a point for Jerry and I give it a point for the crazy eighties gore kills. And that, I think that leaves me at four and I'm going to call it an avoid. <laughs> You're getting coal in your stocking too. <laughs> that makes me so mad. As long as Cletus doesn't deliver it, I'm good. <laughs> and avoid. Okay, okay. All right. Four and avoid. Okay. What do you say, Doctor Shock? Um, I'll give it points for all that that Josh said, and then I'll throw in some extra points for, like I said, the the depiction or how they somehow made this family uh, seem genuine enough to. I don't know if care might be a strong word, but you're definitely pulling for some of them to get out of this thing alive. Okay. Um, You know that they're not all going to, but you're definitely behind them as a family and you buy the family unit. I think that's, that's, uh, and maybe that first scene you're talking about, Jay had a, went a long way for it Mm -hmm. because up to that point, they're just a bunch of bickering idiots is what it feels like. Mm Mm-hmm. I can't believe I'm doing this, but I think I'm going to give it a 6.5. <laughs> yeah, nice. golly. I, I should have, that, that's a rating that I thought should have been retired, but I'll give it a 6.5. <laughs> it is a, it's a rent. I'd say it's, I'd say it's a rental. Where do you, you said you saw it streaming on Netflix? Yeah. Damn and that's it. where I, I think I watched it on Netflix. Yeah. Damn I told you that in my email. Jay. I, know, I, I, I did read them. It's just hard to keep it all straight. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I'm going to say it's, I'm going to say it's a rental, but yes, there are aspects of the movie that I think, and and I can't really argue with, with, uh, 
what was that Dino's tweet? I, I can't argue with anything he said. There are some very twisted, upsetting things about the film as well, uh, which is why I can't really go any higher with it. Um, so yeah, six point five, and I'll say uh, I'll say rental. <laughs> okay, all right. I like that, Dave. I like that. That's respectable. Okay, so yeah. Uh, what everybody else said about it being offensive, it is. But horror is subversive and offensive and awful sometimes. But this is a Christmas horror film. It has D. Will Wallace in it. It is a slasher. It has a siege narrative. It has lots of great Christmas lights, lots of reminders that it's Christmas, lots of great usage of Christmas carols. Um, the kills are pretty strong, like in terms of like, crazy gore um not crazy as in like explicit tons and tons of blood but it, it's very violent i mean you wouldn't want to show this to a six-year-old for example <laughs> you know and so like it's creative and imaginative that way i think there are in the story there is a genuine thread of horror running through it like the spine of this baby has horror in it in so much that the slasher the voice there I think it's Sam Campbell is the person who plays Cletus. Um, the voice and the behavior and everything really creeps me out. I, I, I was actually kind of scared when I was watching this. And that doesn't happen to me very often in horror films. I loved, above all, the reaction of people, to, you know, the, the actual terror to what was happening. And so even though it's low budget and that's really off-putting to me, even though it was like pretty tough on Christians, which is somewhat offensive to me personally, I got to come in at a 7.5 out of 10. I'm calling this a must-see, and I'm telling you it's a strong rental recommendation. But this is probably um, a Christmas, the kind of Christmas horror movie that I might revisit, you know, every other year or so. <laughs> yeah, this is a great one to watch with the family on Christmas morning. Just get everybody together. <laughs> no. Your no. grandma, bring the kids in and sit down and watch this one. Mm -hmm. There you go. Any family members that are, that you've been locked away in a clinic, bring them back in. Let them watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, and make sure you all watch uh, the family stone. It's not horror, but it's a blast. Just saying I I, I want to very quickly, this is literally, unless you guys have a lot more to say, going to be a 30-second spoiler for Red Christmas. Okay. I just want to say really quick, and I'm starting spoilers now. I loved how they handled Jerry for most of the film. I thought, this is so cool that they're having a Down Syndrome actor just be a member of the family. They're not really commenting on it. It's not a big plot point. It's just, this is just a person that's in this family. He was, he did a great performance. It was super progressive in that, in that sense. And I thought that's so cool that this just exists in this movie and it's not being made a big deal of. Then they go the exact opposite direction. Not only is, do they make a big deal of it? It is the plot point that in my opinion, <laughs> uh, you know, condemns this killer. <laughs> to, the, to the life he's lived I'll be obviously along with abortion and um, and man I just can't imagine a more exploitative way to deal with that condition so mm -hmm. yeah yeah I can't can't argue with it it's fair right. it's fair and I especially agree with the first half of what you said 
So I'm just, no, I'm just messing. I mean, it was a great, I, mean, I thought it was a good performance. I thought he did well. So anyways. Yeah. All right. So that's our review of uh, Red Christmas from 2017. It sounds like um, Dave and I at least hope that you check it out. Josh says avoid it. <laughs> okay. At all costs. <laughs> at, at all costs. All right. <laughs> so I think we're ready to get down to some unfinished business from back in October. Right, Josh? Christians will have to be rebaptized if they watch this movie. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, sorry, what were we talking about? I, I was just gonna I was just saying we have some unfinished business from all the way back in October at our meetup, right? We- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Chris Peckover came out to Salt Lake City to the uh, movie podcast network meetup event. We had him on stage with us. We did an awesome panel discussion slash Q and a, and we kind of reviewed the movie, but we were doing it with your uh, movie podcast weekly and my movie streamcast co-hosts. And, you know, we didn't get into anything in depth. We didn't want to have any spoilers. <laughs> Carl messed it up. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I thought, you know, we should definitely revisit this in the appropriate time of year. It's the Christmas season. A lot of our listeners probably still haven't seen this one. And, spoiler alert from my review, I think this is a modern Christmas horror classic. And I think it's, you know, if it would make my all time list. And so I think it's one that we should discuss in depth. I think we're going to start with a regular review, but I would love to go into spoilers because this movie necessitates a spoiler discussion to really talk about the meat of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. We will give you a very clear spoiler discussion warning. And if you have not seen the movie, honestly, the less you know about it, the better your viewing experience is going to be. True. This is available on iTunes and Amazon and, and Blu-ray and it's everywhere. So check it out and come back to this conversation afterward. And of course we do have an interview with Chris Peckover after this, that's about an hour long. And that discussion also begins non-spoiler and then goes to spoiler. If you want to go to horrormoviepodcast.com and look in the show notes, we will have the times when each of these things happen. So you can very carefully skip over spoiler discussion. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. And so with that said, let's move into our feature review of better watch out. Want to put her in the mood? Watch your horror movie. Dude, she's like twice our age. I really don't think it's going to happen. She's here. There's some there. Ashley! Are you hiding? I'll find you. Don't worry, I'll protect you. Better Watch Out is a 2017 Christmas horror thriller film. It's directed by Chris Peckover. It's written by Chris and Zach Kahn. And it stars Olivia DeYoung, Levi Miller, Ed Oxenbold, with small cameo performances by the likes of Virginia Madsen and Patrick Warburton. And I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Is it Dacry Montgomery, who's in Stranger Things Season 2? The mullet guy from from Stranger Things <laughs> is, is in this. And just an incredible cast, especially of young Folks, um, Olivia de Young and Ed Oxenbold, of course, were together in M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit from a few years back, a movie 
think all of us really enjoyed mm-hmm. Levi Miller. His biggest role previous to this was probably in Peter Pan where he played Peter coming up very soon. He is going to be in a wrinkle in time, a Disney film that I'm sure will make him a household name, but mm-hmm. just an incredible young cast here. And what you have is Levi Miller who plays Luke. He has his babysitter, Ashley over and she's getting ready to move. And he kind of want to, wants to make a move on her as it were. <laughs> and he's, he's got a whole evening planned to win her over and his buddy Garrett is by his side and he's going to kind of try to help him make his dreams come to fruition. But the plans for the evening take darker and darker turns as the evening progresses. And it's described as a play on a home invasion film, home alone meets home invasion. I would say that's not exactly what it is, but I don't want to get into spoilers at this stage. Right. Right. Well, let's talk real quick about the genre classification as we often like to do on horror movie podcasts. To me, and you guys, I, I'm very interested in hearing everybody's perspective on this. You know, if you're trying to peg this thing, it's like, um, I think you can call it clearly a dark comedy. It's also part drama. So you could call it a dark dramedy if you were a weirdo. And then it's also horror. I'd call it horror and it's Christmas horror. So I guess I'd call it a dark comedy Christmas horror is what I would say. What What do you say, Dr. Shock? I think you've summed it up there. Uh, I don't really have anything to add to that, I think. uh, But, you know, I think the emphasis may be a little more on horror. I don't know that I'd list it third, um, especially where it goes later in the film Mm -hmm. um, with the the development of one character in particular. Uh, But, no, all of your classifications, yeah, I'd say are are spot on. Okay. I have seen some listeners, I don't know if it was at the website or on Twitter, but question why this was would be considered a comedy and they didn't really see the comedy in it. Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me, I remember like when I first was watching this, <laughs> I'm like, uh, is it is this really a, a horror film? Like, you know, like because as it opens, it seems very, you know. Very uh, nice and pleasant and fun, and it, it's a tr- intriguing immediately for me. But I was like, "Is this really going to go horror?" Because I'm, I'm just not seeing it. And, and then it does; it really does. But I, I just wanted to put that out there for people because I want to make sure they don't be like, "This isn't horror," and then turn it off because it, because it gets there. So trust us on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say I love the way it begins because I think it sets the table as a Christmas movie very well. And I think that's one Mm -hmm. of my favorite things about this movie is it's legitimately feels Christmassy. You know, all the things I mentioned in red Christmas that didn't feel Christmassy, this oozes Christmas, you know, the, Mm -hmm. it starts. And this, although like red Christmas, this was shot in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, They do all the exterior shots in kind of a Midwest type of environment. It's very snowy, all very all American, the Australian actors are all doing American accents. It, it feels like it takes place in a snowy, classic American Christmassy setting, and I love that about it. Like any town USA, as they say. Absolutely, right? <laughs> like a very Norman Rockwell kind of place. Yeah. So if people, as you've said, Josh, the less you know about this, the better. So really, we can't go very far into this film without at least talking. Because there's a kind of a twist that happens early on. 
And um, I, I mean, yeah. is, is there anything else that we should talk about before that? Because we, I mean, to your point of of genre classification, I feel like this is a movie that's constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I think I'm getting is changing throughout the film. Um, really, right. till until very late in the movie, it it continues to go places, and it kind of gets to a place where, like, well, I don't know where they could go from here. They've kind of reached the end of where this premise can take you, and then it changes again. Right. And I love that about the movie. Yeah, and that that was that was yeah, I agree. I thought that was really interesting, but. See, for me, I don't know what you were talking about, Jay, as far as like it took a while for the horror to get going. I thought it kicked in fairly quickly after the babysitter arrived. I mean, they have a couple scenes there that are not, but then all of a sudden things start to go south, um, you know, after the babysitter arrived. So Mm -hmm. I didn't think this movie, I didn't think it was a delay at all. I just thought it was a regular sort of setup at the beginning. Um, And then we're getting into some pretty intense uh, situations. And I think, um, you know, a home invasion here, um, that, uh, I thought played out very, very well, Mm -hmm. uh, and was very intense. Yeah. I I see what you mean. Yeah. I I mean, it's probably what, like 15, 20 minutes or so until we start getting some threats or threatening things that happen. But I guess like just the tone, I guess is so warm and wholesome and Christmassy, because sometimes a horror film will start and it looks pleasant, but they'll play like some creepy underlying soundtrack and you have a sense or some horror films will start with a kill and then, you know, lead it back to it and come back around later on. Yeah, it doesn't take forever or anything, but I, I was like in the beginning, I'm like, this seems really just fun and upbeat and happy and, <laughs> you know, but but I see what you mean. What about this? This is something we could talk about without getting into any kind of spoilers or anything the whole the whole uh fact that he wants to hook up with his babysitter uh you know i i think that's interesting because that's kind of a a, i would say a pretty common male fantasy i had i had that experience (laughs) to to some extent (laughs) my good buddy like his his older sister would babysit me and she wasn't that much older kind of like in this situation and, and so, yeah, you kind of think, um, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting if, uh, like, <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I mean? So, like, I think that that's a neat kind of universal thing that also has a little bit, because really what we're talking about is underage, like, relationship here. So there's something, just even though it's, on one hand, it's inherently kind of natural for the, you know, the babysit D to be interested in the babysitter. But if like, if it were reversed and the babysitter was, you know, interested the other way, then it would have a, a creepy part of it. So I think that that's, oh, yes. <clears throat> that's probably related in some Freudian way to like the Oedipus complex or something. I mean, I, I see that um, coming into play a little bit here. And it informs the things that happen later on in the film, which we'll talk about. But anyways, I I guess I'll save that. Anything else you want to talk about before we go? I mean, are we going to do this in stages? Like, are we going to go like mild spoilers or full blown? No, I think we can go full blown. Yeah, I think what can be said about this movie is actually there's a lot in in terms of telling people about what type of movie it is. I think uh, it's one of the best shot horror movies that you'll see this year. I think for my money, it's up there with 
Get Out and The Devil's Candy for films that, you know, were lower end budgets for Hollywood, you know, kind of in the 5 million and under range. And they just look fantastic. And of course, it's not like on the level of something like A Cure for Wellness, which is much bigger budget film. But for the level of its budget, it's it's gorgeous to look at. It has one of the more interesting uh, villains that you'll see in a horror movie in recent years. It's got an incredible final girl, an interesting kind of not not spin, but but slight evolution of the final girl. It is art very artfully executed. So there are big kind of kill moments, but they the the gore isn't necessarily always on screen. It's very artfully done. And mm-hmm. some people may dislike that personally. I thought it was really cool the way they did it. I mean, I, I really appreciated that just not, not because I don't, I don't want to see the gore, but just because I thought, wow, that was awesome. I've never seen this shot before. I think the way that it, it, ha- it was handled in this movie, I think it worked. Yes. Yeah. And I, there's one in particular where, um, you know, we won't get in. Well, I mean, we're going to get into spoilers later, but I'm just for right now, um, you know, involving the recreation of a, of a scene from a movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where I think the reactions of the characters are what really sells it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we see enough to know what's happened, but then to just sort of see the, the looks on the faces of these, of these young actors, all of whom are tremendous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what really, that's what really sells that scene. Yeah, and I think we see child actors a lot in films and think, well, they're okay for a kid actor. That's passable. But I think this is Haley Joel Osment level of acting where these kids are right up there with the best adult actors, you know, out there. I think absolutely. I think Levi Miller is giving an incredibly complex performance and he does it seemingly effortlessly. I mean, it feels com- completely believable. Olivia de Young and Ed Oxenbold, again, we've seen them in The Visit. I think this is a huge step up for them as actors. I think they're both showing us things that we didn't see in The Visit. And Ed Oxenbold, I think in particular, I think this is his strongest thing that I've seen him in. I've seen him in now maybe two or three movies previous to this. And I think he's matured so much since his earlier work. I mean, he's really great in this. And I didn't necessarily think that in the first couple of things I saw him in. So yeah, totally. just uh, an amazing cast. And, and the film requires the cast to be as good as they are. And they come yes. through. It really does. It really yeah. does. I mean, if you imagine if, if they were to throw like, I'm not trying to be mean here, but Andy Barkley or something like that. Into right. cast, and, and all of a sudden this movie doesn't work at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think it really did hinge on finding the right cast and, and, I don't know that he could have done uh, that. Chris Peck ever could have done any better um, with who it, with who he cast in the film. I just wanted to back up what you guys said. I agree one hundred percent, and I think it's interesting to have a horror film like this, where in, in this particular situation, as you've said, the performances are crucial. That's not always the case with horror. A lot of times, you know, we we depend on other things to get us through the movie, but in this story. In order to pull it off, the performances have to be there. Go ahead, Josh. Sorry. No, I, I have much to add. I think there are a couple older teenager male performances there. I, I liked a little bit less, but the core cast here is just stellar. 
And I think, you know, people have been talking about get out for instance, as a film that forget the best horror film of the year. This is one of the best all around films of the year. I kind of feel like that about better watch out. I don't think it will ever get the same recognition because it's not dealing with a social issue in the same way or on the same level as get out. It's, it's a Christmas horror movie. So it's already kind of um, niche and, and goofy probably from a mainstream person's (laughs) perspective, but I think it is a classic. I think this is a classic Christmas horror movie. And I think those performances are on the level of anything you're going to see in definitely any horror film this year, maybe any film this year. Those are, I mean, I, I know I'm just harping on it, but they're really, really good. No, I'm with you on that. And I wanted to say that too, because as since I saw this back in October for the first time, I've been talking to people about it and trying to get them to see it. And then when they're like, okay, well, what's it? What is it? And when I explain, well, it's a, it's a, like a Christmas horror, dark comedy. And then they just look at me like, come on, you know, like really? Yeah. <laughs> and they, they, they always do that. And then I'm like, no, I'm like, for real. I'm like, trust me, I don't like dark comedy and I'm pretty hard on comedies in general. Give it a chance. And, and what my point in saying all this is I think that honestly, most I would say I'm guessing an 80% of like 80% of a mainstream movie loving audience, at least 80% would love this. I mean, it does have some creepy, uncomfortable horror moments that are like icky, <laughs> which we can talk about, but um, you know, that might, that might offend some of the more, uh, you know, sensitive type people. But otherwise I think that this really has some pretty widespread appeal, even though it is, you know, such a little uh, niche type of horror flick. Absolutely, man. Well, should we give our ratings and recommendations now before we go into spoilers for those who aren't going to continue with us? Yeah, I think that's great. I'd love to. And um, is it okay? Are you guys okay if I go first on this? Go for it, man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here it goes. All right. So um, I said this at the meetup and I'll say it again. I, and this speaks to what I was just talking about, the universal type of likability. I think that we've gotten a film here that just as um, Trick or Treat, Mike Doherty's Trick or Treat is to Halloween, I think Better Watch Out is to Christmas horror movies now. I mean, this is something that I plan on watching every year. I mean, it's 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 in my rotation now, I think, with... um. You know, a Christmas story, which of course isn't horror, but you know those kind of movies. I think it's, I think it's fun on that level, and it's not something that I would necessarily call scary, um, but it is dark. It's violent. It's troubling, and um, most of all, above all, it's fun. And that's that's my most prevalent descriptor when I describe trick or treat as well. So, um, so this is a film that I was just genuinely impressed with. It was uh, way more than I was expecting it would be. And um, so I give it an 8.5 out of 10. And I say buy it and uh, watch it each year. This is a must-see for 2017. Uh, what do you say, Dr. Shock? I'm going to agree with you. I think when when I think of the Christmas horror movies that I watch, like to watch during the season, you know, you have uh, Black Christmas which I think is probably the, the the pinnacle. That's the one I think that a lot of people, uh, at least I always have thought of it as the, the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like Silent Night, Deadly Night, films like that. 
this is going to be a tradition. This will be now a, a Christmas tradition. I will watch this right along with, with um, you know, a Charlie Brown Christmas and a Black Adder Christmas. Um, <laughs> this is going to be right there with me every year now. And that's saying something. You know, when you come across a movie that, that you're, you are looking forward to the season so you can watch it again. And that's this movie for me, for all the reasons we've discussed and for the reasons we will be discussing. Um, it's a 9 out of 10 for me. It's a buy. You're definitely going to want to own this. Um, just, in, you know, uh, you're going to want to have it. And I don't know that you're even going to want to wait till Christmas uh, to watch it again. You know, it's one of those films that it even sort of transcends the season. And I look at Black Christmas as one of those as well, where you don't just have to wait for the season. But, um, yeah, 9 out of 10, and it's a definite buy. Excellent. All right, and what about you, Wolfman Josh? Yeah, I agree with Dave. I I, I agree with you as well, but I uh, his number rating, I think this is a 9 out of 10 for me. I think there are very few things that knock it down. I, I could almost give it a 10. As I mentioned, I don't love the characters of the older teenage boys in the film. And I think they they just knock it down slightly for me. And I also would have liked to see, you know, Dave talked about a scene where they recreate a scene from another movie. I'd have liked to see more of those kind of hijinks in the film. I think if there had been one or two more set pieces or scenes like that, that would have really knocked, kicked the film up even further for me mm-hmm. and made it something I would have just loved, loved, loved to watch. I still do. And I think this, and I've said already, it's a, it's a modern classic. I think this is, as you guys said, this will join my Christmas rotation for me. My, you know, I love Christmas movies in general, so I've got 20 on my shelf, but Christmas vacation. I watch every year home alone. I watch every year and this, this will go in there with those gremlins. This is one I'm going to watch every year. And, um, and I absolutely love it. So I think this is a buy. I would say pick up the Blu-ray. I got it myself. There's a cool behind-the-scenes documentary. I, I will say really quick, this film was originally titled Safe Neighborhood. And then before it came out, they changed the name to Better Watch Out, which, as you guys know, was uh, the subtitle to Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. It was right. also the alternative title to Christmas Evil. Mm-hmm. That was You Better Watch Out. Um, so this is a, a title that's been floating around the horror community for a long time, but this is probably the best version of a better watch out movie. I think this is the one that will um, carry that title, you know, yeah. into the future. This will be the movie that's the, that's thought of as better watch out. And uh, funnily enough, Dave was mentioning this when we were talking privately on the Blu-ray, the behind the scenes documentary, it still says, the making of safe neighborhood, but the documentary is called red Christmas, the making of safe neighborhood. So I was like, man, they've sure got a lot of title confusion going on with this one. Wow. (laughs) Yes. That's hilarious. But anyway, I digress. Okay. So um, that's our non spoiler review of uh, better watch out. And so if you haven't seen the film, trust us, make sure you see it. Before we proceed into our major plot spoilers now for Better Watch Out. Okay, where do where did you want to start with this, Wolfman? I mean, I think what I want to say is I thought I was going to be getting the Strangers Meets Home Alone. I thought we were gonna have a legitimate 
mm-hmm. home invasion film, but rather than Kevin McAllister and family friendly stuff, we were going to get some hardcore killing the strangers basically going on. And I am so there for that movie. If they make that now, I will watch that instantly. I mean, that is a premise that to me just lights me up. And they, you, you get a couple minutes of that in this movie where you think, Oh, that's the direction this is going. It turns out that it's a bait and switch and that's fine because I think where it goes is actually smarter and, uh, and a level more interesting, a level more mature. I think it shows that Chris Peckover is a filmmaker that transcends just doing genre stuff. He's just making great movies and it's not necessarily, you know, has to adhere to a genre trope or whatever to justify itself. It's just a great story. It's great storytelling and it's, it's fascinating the directions that this movie goes. I was totally satisfied with the strangers meets home alone, you know? And so, uh, I guess I'm that's you know that's part of how I'm kind of split. Like I mentioned I would like to see more of those set pieces, like we get with what I'll now say is the paint can scene. Mm-hmm. I love that. I wanted to see three or four more of those, and that would have made the movie perfect in my eyes. You know. Yeah, but but to speak to that scene just real quick, since we're on it, the way that the um, the spray of paint is on the the floor, you know, and, and it's it's absent where his head was. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, <laughs> that is so on the money. I, I just, I really admire that. I love that part. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. To me, the most fascinating thing about this movie is um, the whole concept of consequences. Um, as I, the, the first time I saw it, I was like kind of overcome with um, the fact that you have a character here who has crossed the line, has gone too far, and is beyond the point of no return. And I was. Well, we should say it takes a turn from, you know, that bait and switch. It becomes this character, you know, binds up the babysitter mm-hmm. and holds her hostage. And, yes. and you think it might be become a torture porn film. You don't really know where it's going. Yeah. And and that's what I loved loved about it is there's so many awful possibilities, and the film does not ever feel like it's scared to delve into those dark recesses yeah and the right. key- and it and it does there's that that truth or dare game you're almost thinking you don't want to see them go there <laughs> you know you don't want to mm-hmm. you don't want to see this character play that game knowing what we know about him to that point yes because of what he's capable of doing it makes you cringe uh, it does it, it does it, it makes it makes you cringe and yet they're still looking. It's like you're thinking, how's he going to get out of this? Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg as to what this kid's got to cover up as this movie progresses. Right. And the whole way we're thinking he's done. There's no way out of this. What's he going to do? That's, that's um, exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. The consequences thing, because he's crossed the line. I mean, he gets he gets to the point where, I mean, in the truth or dare game, you get some groping or a.k.a sexual assault you know and then i'm i'm worried as i'm watching this film the first time i'm really worried i'm like okay how far is this gonna go because what's this kid supposed to be like 12 years old or something like like what was his age again you know like and and i was very nervous and the way that that was shot i'm like oh you know i was like so nervous and i'm like this is really gonna get weird and uncomfortable and depending on how far he goes 
you know, and then there's a murder, <laughs> you know, you, you start having deaths and I'm like, wow. Yeah. And Dave, I, I'm with you hundred percent. That's, that's exactly what I was talking about because I'm like, okay, there is no way out. Uh, what's going to happen? Cause eventually the parents come home to the babysitter, you know, right. They, right. they come back home and, and how are you going to fix all this? I mean, you, you have that feeling anytime you've seen a film where there's a party and the kids Absolutely. wreck the house, but this is Absolutely. way worse. It, it absolutely is. And, and that's also the moment where you stop laughing. Right. You know, because now all of a sudden his antics aren't funny anymore. He's, it's just twisted. Sicko. And, and you're not, you're not finding it as humorous anymore. Um, but I think that was the moment where we were supposed to stop laughing. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think that that's, that's, I think that was by design. I think this is like, okay, we've shown you that this kid is a little unhinged. Now we're going to show you he's psychotic. He is the single scariest little kid you could ever encounter. And we find out just from their conversations, this, this is not a, this is not like he didn't just snap. This has been building, you know, there's talk of a pet hamster. There's, um, uh, you know, a conversation of, of, um, you know, when the, the mother at the beginning is talking about how we caught him sleepwalking. Well, then we find out why he was sleepwalking. <laughs> I mean, there are just all of these things going on that are showing that that this kid is a a monster. He is a monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, something that uh, Chris Peckover mentioned during our meetup in that Q and A, he referred to the the concept of toxic masculinity, and I think that's interesting, especially when exploring a horror concept like this, because I think that 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 kind of a concept of toxic masculinity would lead to um, what we see in a full-blown, you know, psychosis or something where someone has become, you know, a a killer. I mean, it's kind of like a proto-slasher film. It serves as a precursor to slasher, and you can see that development. Well, this is like seeing, like, um, you know, a serial killer or a you know, a, a slasher type movie, but like the young version, you know what I mean? And it's right. like, this, I mean, this precedes that. This, this, this is the type of kid who would grow up to be Hannibal Lecter. He's incredibly intelligent. Right. Yeah. You know, right. He's incredibly intelligent. And you see that with where they go with when it does come time to clean things up mm-hmm. and it does come time to, to arrange things in, in the way that he thinks. I mean, he thought of everything. And you think of a small town police force, they're probably just going to buy this hook, line and sinker oh, yeah. as, to, as to what he's come up with. <laughs> right. You know, and, and I'm, I'm sitting there trying to think, where's the flaw in his plan? Where, where is it? Well, once they find what they find, they might not delve so much more deeply into it to even, so there was a damn good chance he could have gotten away with this. Mm-hmm. And that I think is, is what adds that's like the 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 final sort of layer on this cake is that we see it's like wow this kid yes he's he's scary and he's he's cruel and he's evil and he's smart and that makes him that just makes it even more um uh i guess very unsettling at that point where yeah. what he if if he doesn't think anybody can stop him where's he going to go next? <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, and and the other thing that I think really disturbed me about this character, because I said, you know, the movie isn't like tons scary, but it is very disturbing. And I think it's that concept of trapping, obtaining, or possessing. There's like, you know, he's objectifying the babysitter. She becomes the object of his desire. And then he wants to try to, um, you know, in, inflict his will upon her. And that's always frightening. That that concept is always scary, especially coming from a youth like this. Yeah. And I talked about kind of a twist on the final girl. I think she's so fascinating because as you've just pointed out, she is an object to be possessed by all of these guys, the two ex-boyfriends and these two younger kids. She's the object of desire. They want to have her. They want to own her. They want her to be theirs. And she just isn't having it. Like she just not, she never gives up either with the ex-boyfriends or this guy. She just is like, no, I'm, I'm me. I'm living my life. It's a very progressive feminist kind of, point of view for this character mm-hmm. and especially within the circumstances she finds herself in where you know she most of us would be begging for our lives willing to do anything i'm sure he wants her to be willing to do anything you know and use this as leverage to maybe get this sexual gratification that he's wanted from her she <laughs> does not offer this up she's not even considering it slightly she doesn't beg for her life she doesn't scream and cry she's not a victim even when she is essentially murdered in the film she is thinking she's smart she's doing all the right things and you know and that is what i love and you know we talked about this with get out as well i love a horror protagonist who does everything right and You know, that, and and still bad things happen. Doesn't mean that everything won't go wrong, but they make the smartest moves possible. It's such a fun horror. And she and and the performance is so strong because even though she's tied up through a good portion of the movie and a large portion of the movie, she has tape over her mouth. Mm-hmm. You you still see the emotion there. You still see it in the way that 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 in the eyes. And there's a late scene there. I think that's probably one of that. I was just floored by it where everything has happened and, and, and Levi, um, uh, well, uh, Lucas, the character is, is talking to her and you just see like, she's stone faced. She's, she's just, she's not having it. She's not giving <laughs> in to this kid. Yeah. She is going to just be her, but yet that tear runs down the cheek. Mm, and I yeah. thought that I was like, wow. I mean, that is like a really powerful moment. And, Again, speaking to the to the actress, I mean, she was phenomenal. I thought she was great in the visit, obviously, and I really think that this is she's better here. Yeah. And I just, she's one of those actresses where you you can't wait to see where she goes. Yes, I mean, if she continues on, you could see her thanking the Academy one day. Oh, it, oh, for sure. Yeah, she's so watchable, and and Levi Miller is too. You just want to keep watching them forever i think levi miller does something so difficult here where i really bought him as this kid that he's pretending to be at the beginning of the movie i thought he did such a great job of playing this kind of sweet naive little kid Uh i i loved him i found him so endearing and and you think garrett is this bad influence on him who's in there stealing from the parents drug cabinet and you just think this little 
that's coming in here. <laughs> like he's going <laughs> to corrupt this good kid, you know, but it's really Luke has the wall pulled over everyone's eyes. Even Garrett, who knows he's up to something a little more devious, has no right. idea the depth of <laughs> capac- the capacity for evil that Luke has. And, yes. and what is really something is that Garrett you know, the, he's obviously not from uh, quite the same family, you know, and I saw this in the, in the, in the making of where, where Chris Becker's talking, they tried to, to convey that by the way Garrett dresses, that he's not as affluent. He's not from a rich family. And so he's kind of almost like Lucas's pet in a way mm-hmm. where, where he's going to follow him around and he's going to do what he says. So this friendship is more of something that Lucas is set, is keeping because, hey, here's somebody I can control. Here's mm-hmm. a partner in crime that I can get to do. I mean, and in this film, he gets Garrett to do things that Garrett does not want to do. Garrett is telling him, I don't want to do this, and yet he does it. I mean, the whole scene with the paint can, where Garrett's like, don't do it, don't do it. I can't, you can't do this. It's too much. You can't do it. Put the blindfold on him. Garrett puts the blindfold on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And 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 Ed Oxenbold is so good about slowly revealing his character's fragility throughout the film because again at the beginning he starts out like oh he's he's the you know the bad kid. He's the he's the one that gets high and he's the one that's saying hey man I hope you get some tonight. You know, he's kind of you think he's going to be the one who is the worst of the two and he just he slowly peels back that performance to show Oh, this kid needs something from this relationship and he's unwilling to walk away from what is a really bad situation because Luke has this spell over him. I don't know. I just thought it was really strong performance. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And I want to, sorry to backtrack for a second, but what you were saying about, about her character and how she continues to stand up to them. I think that's especially impressive in this particular situation because even even after she sees that this is life and death and that, that that death could very well be involved, she still isn't scared. You know, I mean, she stands up and everything. And I think that's really admirable. Just real quick, back to your point about, you know, with, with the babysitter, the fact that he is not only, you know, smitten with the babysitter, but but actually trying to figure out a way that, mm-hmm. that he can have sex with her. And he's looking on the internet, <clears throat> you know, I think that speaks more to his character and, and sort of, um, uh, I guess gives us a few ideas of where the story may eventually go, uh, more than anything else that, that he's, he's looking these things up online and, and getting all of these ideas and, and this is where, how it's going to go. I mean, we've all been there where there's, you know, when we were kids and there's an older girl and whatever, but I don't think any of us were ever at the point it's like, hey, maybe if I do my research here, I might be able to, I might be able to score. Um, I and I think, did. well, perhaps, you know, it, it's possible. You, you know, I didn't have the internet back then, but I, I worked on poetry pretty hard. Encyclopedia. Right. You pulled out your Funkin' Wagnalls and you were looking up. <laughs> But but I think that that uh, sort of gives us it clues us in on on this character, and also the the, with the way that that Garrett and him are are talking about it, Um, and and Garrett's sort of role in this whole thing with hey 
I mean, you hear right in the trailer, dude, she's like twice our age. I just don't see it happening, you know? <laughs> but if I were to give um, a constructive criticism, and honestly, this isn't as much as something that I think is wrong with the film as it is personal taste on my part. I think anybody who's listened to this podcast for a while knows that I I love horror that's set in the real world. Like the more realistic, like the more realism there is, then generally speaking, the more I love it. And so this kid, his 12 year old um, mastermind genius, evil genius, you know, he's there's a there's a little bit of a suspension of disbelief that's required here. And plus, it's a little bit playful and it's a little bit mischievous. And all of that's well done. And so I think for a dark comedy, yes, it works just fine. But for me, I think that's why I'm kind of in, in the 8.5 range as opposed to like a full-blown 10 because um, for me, if it were 100% real-world gritty, uh, then it wouldn't have strained. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I think I would have enjoyed that more. But then at the same time, you know, it, even though it might have been scarier, I think it would have been more difficult to believe that you got this 12 year old, you know, when it, when you get gritty, I think there have, there has to be a lot of other things to accompany it, um, in order to sell it. And so with this, because it is like a, the dark comedy aspect, I think that allows for some suspension of disbelief. And I think there are some of the contraptions he comes up with, like the thing that breaks the window and the, you know, the hanging scene, they're a little, hyper real you know they're there i think those two things are outside of the realm of believability the reason they get passed for me is because they feel like they're kind of in the world of kevin McAllister from home alone <laughs> who's kind of coming up with these plans and yeah. he's executing them on a level where yeah. when you watch home alone you can definitely sympathize with kevin his home's being broken into and he's getting these guys but you know, after you watch the film a few times and you really start thinking about the pain and suffering these guys are going through. And especially if you get into home alone two, he just gets sadistic. He's this evil little monster. Like if you really <laughs> take a step back, like, you know, when you take a step back from Batman and you realize, Oh, like this guy is a, is an insane vigilante. You take a step back from Kevin McAllister and you think this guy is a psychopath. Like yeah. he is, taking so much pleasure in torturing these guys to the point of having the, you know, a nails go through their foot and setting oh, them on fire man. and like throwing bricks at their head. And I mean, you know, lighting a rope that they're climbing on fire. And I mean, it's really sick stuff. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like, you know, Levi Miller's character of Luke is like the real world logical version of what this type of kid would be which is why i wanted to see even more of those things and how each home loan movie we get you know 10 of these contraptions I loved loved the paint cans i just would have wanted to see one too mm -hmm. and i and i'll tell you it, it might be fun and i don't know I, obviously i haven't done this yet but it might be fun to to do like a double feature of home alone and this movie and imagine mm -hmm. it's the same neighborhood yeah, totally. you know, and that it's the same night, and these things are happening maybe a, a half a mile apart <laughs> from each other. Uh -huh. You know, I think that could be really interesting, and it's certainly a town that if I ever moved to it, I'd sure as hell be, make sure I, who my kids' friends are. You know, because mm. obviously yeah. this is a, a sick, twisted little town. And now, would it, wouldn't it have been just hilarious if we 
would have seen uh, Joe Pesci and what's his face driving in their van. Just just a little, <laughs> just a real quick yeah. little scene, you know. What bandits? Yeah, the what bandits. That would have been, been funny. <clears throat> you know, I liked uh, in the Variety's review of this film, I liked what they wrote about it. It's a little wordy, but I still like it. It said uh, director Chris Peckover nicely handles the swerves toward dramatic peril and fatal consequences while still maintaining a confectionery family entertainment, quote-unquote, veneer of antique doings and a glossy suburban setting. And I think um, that's a very wordy way to summarize this film, but I, I think it's true. When you... I, I, a really neat thing that the cinema has done, especially American cinema, I've seen this a lot in American cinema, and I'm sure if I watched more foreign cinema, I would have seen it there too, but the whole the whole suburb thing and in like from back in um like the graduate even like something like that where you see that there's there's something that's not quite right you know in the suburbs like there's that you, it, it, it goes back even further than that Douglas Sirk explored that in the 50s right where you have these these perfectly manicured lawns and these beautiful homes but inside it's it's a jail for a lot of people because they have to behave in a certain way with with um, what is expected of them. Yes. So, and I think that this, you're right. This is almost like um, carrying forward from that, um, and and maybe even explaining why you know something and, like this could happen. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about that is, especially in this year, 2017, when there's been this um, this kind of this revolution where all of these. Um, you know, these victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault have come forward and have stood up and and kind of have blown the lid off of what has been festering beneath. I think it's an interesting film at this time period because it kind of shows there are monsters beneath the surface and, and they, they, they might seem like, you know, the nice whatever on the surface, but then, right. you know, they're actually predators. And I think, you know, in our society, since we're yeah. seeing so much of that, this is an interesting timing for this film. And it's, and, it's, and you just never know. I mean, you, okay, let's be honest. You look at that house in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. you're thinking, oh, there might be some sick bastards living in there. <laughs> but, the, you know, you go you go down the street in, the, in suburbia, and you could, you, could, you could pass any number of them, and it could be the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's the burbs. Uh, yeah. Totally. Totally. So, anyways... I love this movie quite a bit. It's so it's it's streaming on Amazon for six ninety nine. Just so people know, if if um, I hope we, I hope we have uh, sold them to at least check it out. Typically, I don't want to reference the interview we did with Chris, but mm-hmm. it's currently this movie is ninety nine cents on iTunes. If you want to go check it out there. Oh, nice. Okay, so even better deal there. That's good. Yeah. Well, um, anything else you guys want to say about uh, Better Watch Out in the spoiler section? Just, just that definitely watch it because I think uh, I think it'll be the first of many times you will watch it over the course of years uh, during the holiday season. Yeah. What about you, Josh? Any final final words? I mean, I feel like I've gushed all over it a lot. I. It's just because I like it so much. And I, I do worry, you know, you oversell something like this because, as I said, it it, it could have gone further in, in some ways. And so I think there's a 
chance that people could be underwhelmed when they watch it. What I will say is that watch it again, because it's a movie that gets better on a, on a repeat viewing. It's a movie that you start to notice all of the things it's doing. It's got a lot going on under the surface. That's not immediately obvious. It's got an incredible attention to detail. As Dave said, you know, you're trying to figure out how is he going to get away with this? The film covers its bases pretty well. I think I spotted one plot hole, but mostly it's right on the money, you know? And I think um, it's a movie that because of the nature of the villain, it just is fascinating to see a second time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm with you on that. And, and whereas, I mean, because of the, the dark comedy in there. I mean, whereas like something like Martyrs, right, would be a, a horror film with teeth. I think this would be a horror movie that that snarls or growls, you know, and 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 it's fun. I mean, I think you can't underestimate or I guess underappreciate when a horror film is fun. I mean, we just talked about Red Christmas, and that isn't as much fun as it is just troubling and weird and bizarre right and sometimes we watch horror films just to be totally grossed out or totally freaked out and sometimes we watch them for fun and this is one of those so all right well i wish i could join you guys and uh be part of the chris peckover interview but i get to get back to my eggnog um i know you're going to be running right into that interview here so i'll just say real quick before i leave because i don't want to ruin the mood of better watch out um Make sure everybody, you email your top 10 horror list of 2017. You can use the template. I'm going to post a blog um, so you can just copy and paste that. We'd love to get your horror movies. We're doing the same kind of show over on moviepodcastweekly.com. And that's going to be our top 10 movies of 2017. And um, recently on the network, we debated the merits of Avatar, which is hilarious. I did my best <laughs> to defend it, so... Anyway, thanks for having me, guys. I'm sorry I couldn't be here for the whole episode, but I appreciate you uh, having me along for the ride for these two films. Absolutely. At this point in the show, we are going to hear a little taste of King and Breitenbach's Quartet Macabre performing some music from Better Watch Out. We heard a little bit of that at the live event, but they went into the studio and recorded it a little bit better. And we're going to hear just a portion of that now before the Chris Peckover interview. If you want to stick around to the very end of the show, we'll put the song in its entirety. It's about three minutes that Kagan performed for us. And uh, you can hear that. And you can also check it out on YouTube. We'll put a link in the show notes. You can see the video of them performing as they record. So nice. Thanks to Kagan as usual for all the awesome music he provides. Mm -hmm. Kagan, we should say also did the cool, Christmas style HMP theme at yes. the beginning of the show. Yeah. Kagan's the man. Absolutely. Take it away. this point in the show we would like to welcome the director of better watch out chris peckover thank you for joining us hey guys good to see you again yeah nice talking now, to some you. of you i'm sure hopefully a lot of you know chris came out to salt lake city 
did a special screening of Better Watch Out during our meetup event and did a Q&A for the audience. And that was a lot of fun. We got to hang out with you for a couple of days and it's a blast. But we didn't get that deep into the film just due to the constraints of the event. So I, I'm really glad that you're able to come back and and talk about it a little bit more with us. So is this is this the point where we say, spoiler warning, we're going to go both feet into the deep Let's end? Let's definitely <laughs> give one. If uh, if you feel like you're going to go that direction. And yeah, I definitely want to get to spoilers before we're done here. But we don't necessarily have to start off with spoilers if people want to hear okay. your, you know, your manly voice for a little while here. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe we uh, talk general stuff. And then, yeah. uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we want to get into the, the meat of it eventually. Yeah. So. And you know, the way we review movies, you've, you've heard the show, we, we talk a lot about themes and, and that kind of stuff. So I actually want to focus a little bit more on the production technical stuff with you. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get into the, some of the thematic stuff because there's so much going on underneath the surface of the movie, but I'd like to hear just about the filmmaking. So I, li- I used to listen to the creative screenwriting podcast with Jeff Goldsmith that, isn't around anymore. Unfortunately, I thought that was such an awesome podcast. He interviewed screenwriters, but he had a question he always started with. So I want to start out the way that Jeff Goldsmith always started out with breaking in stories. So how did you become a director for the first time? So I, I was really lucky. Um, a year out of uh, USC, I sold my first script and it ended up being the very first movie that I directed undocumented. Um, about six months out of school, I, went around to three different companies and pitched what at the time no one was doing yet, which was, uh, I was like, what if you did a found footage movie except gave it a proper budget and made it timely and Mm. realistic as opposed to kind of like supernatural. And at the time wreck hadn't happened yet. Uh, you know, nothing. I, I think the first major one was Cloverfield, um, but like none of those had happened yet. So I think everyone kind of had the same idea at the same time. I went to all three companies. All three were like, if you write that script, we will buy it. So I kind of did my research and figured out which company had the most, like um, was already self-financed and ended up being uh, Keith Calder and Jess Wu's company, Snoot. Oh, really? So um, I, I sold the script to them eight months later after polishing it up. And it took us another like two years to get it made. Um, but that was my first movie to direct and weirdly my first script. I wrote like five scripts after that that um, for various reasons like got held up or weren't quite right. Um, at one point, I was developing a script uh, at Blind Wink, which was Gore Verbinski's company. Oh, yeah. Um, but <laughs> Gore Verbinski's company – was getting paid like $3 million a year by universal to produce other movies besides Gore's films. And they just never did. So they went under and, uh, my, my script kind of went with it. And, uh, yeah. yeah, So it took me a long time to finally get my legs back under me with, with better watch out, but I'm hopefully back, uh, not for another six years wait. (laughs) That's interesting. We talked recently with Sean Byrne who directed the devil's candy this year and Keith produced that as well. And, uh, and Sean had a very similar experience. He had, he had this kind of a hit film with the loved ones and had a really hard time getting another film made. That's just how it goes sometimes. But well, you are back in a big way and I'm glad that you 
were able to show what you can do in Better Watch Out because I think there is um, a certain skepticism around uh, found footage directors that maybe they don't know how to shoot a real movie in you know in quotes. And you just came in and uh, you've shot this incredibly technically impressive, gorgeous narrative film. It's weird. Um, in hindsight, I feel like found footage is actually harder um, to pull off yeah. well because oh, absolutely. with a normal movie, you can put the camera wherever you want, uh, inside the toaster, on the ceiling, anywhere. Whereas found footage, you have to keep it interesting where it's all at eye level unless you're doing gimmicky things like dropping the camera and stuff. And also the the tough thing that I found with it is your main characters are barely on screen. Um, right. At least in my, in my case, I kind of, you know, in, in hindsight, it's like, yeah, all my main characters were the documentary crew. So it was really hard to do great, deep character development when you kind of don't get to see them as much. So it, it, it is a, yeah. a weird genre oh, that's um, interesting. unless, unless you're doing something like uh, chronicle where, right. you know, a, a kid is like making cameras float around him and so right. on. You're kind of, you're kind of <laughs> stuck with, with this weird storytelling where you're, it, you're, your characters are just acting like a lens and not really the focal point of the movie. Yeah. And for those who haven't seen undocumented, it is a really, different take on found footage. I mean, the vast majority, like 95% of found footage movies have, you know, kind of a similar trajectory and yours is not that at all. So it's weird. I, so I met with, um, Jason Blum last week. Oh, cool. Like 10 days ago, talking about like the theory of found footage. And, um, we kind of struck upon this realization that the, the reason why found footage works so well is it takes unbelievable things but grounds them Mm. um one of the problems i feel like a lot of audiences had with undocumented was it's already a very realistic topic yeah and so treating it with a documentary style makes it almost too close for home to to home for some people interesting it's why you'll never see a found footage like war movie because it'll just be it's just miserable. Grotesque. Yeah. <laughs> it's just miserable. Yeah. So sound footage almost works better when it's unrealistic things portrayed realistically. And and Alien. undocumented is a, a much harsher viewing experience than Better Watch Out. I mean, I think um I, I wouldn't say you pull punches with Better Watch Out, but it is definitely a little more user friendly than undocumented. Is that a conscious I, decision? Absolutely. I, I was like well, I can either keep being this like auteur or I can be a guy who can sustain himself and actually like <laughs> right. have a career and eat, and eat, get eat meals and pay rent and yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not eat pasta every night. So, um, and even though I love pasta, I'm still having a lot of it, but, uh, I'm, I'm like a mini step closer. So <laughs> That's cool. So this script for Better Watch Out comes to you through Brian Hamble and uh, Paul Jensen. Is that right? And and Zach Kahn has written the original uh, screenplay, but you end up writing a lot yourself on it. How did that process go? So Zach had written this just brilliant um, 
really brilliant twist. Um, and the rest of the film, listen, again, it's, it's cool that we're talking, um, about undocumented because you may know where I was coming from. Zach had written a very similarly toned movie to undocumented where it was Mm. very, very dark, very harsh, um, rather hopeless. Um, and again, I, I don't mind movies that go there. Like I, I, I watch Requiem for a Dream every two years. I can't help it. I love it. Right. Um, it's like inspiring to me, but most people kind of like curl up in a fetal position and they're like, I recognize this is a good movie. I don't know if I need to see this again. <laughs> right. No, yeah, I've got so, those movies. Right, right, right. So with Better Watch Out, I was like, love it. Love your idea. Let's make this more accessible and more fun. And it it was fun, but it was kind of like, again, I can't stress this enough. Like Zach is wonderfully twistedly, brilliantly dark. And I kind of like pulled it into more of a roller coaster fun ride. That's, that's how I like to think of my contribution to it. So like uh, all the home alone stuff, all the John Hughesiness of it, tonally, the, the banter, the, the kind of like fun character dynamics. It, Zach had set up for it, but I just kind of like pulled it out. Yeah. And I think that's the stuff. I mean, I'm his contribution I'm sure was huge as well, but I think that's the stuff that's going to make it feel like a classic to people when they see it for the first time, because it feels it has, despite being this a very contemporary looking film and it deals with very contemporary issues and characters. It still has this, kind of nostalgia built into it. Maybe some of that's the Christmas setting, but I think a lot of it is, it has kind of that John Hughesian vibe to it as well. We totally leaned it into the, the Christmas, you know, like the Christmas juxtaposition of the story. Yeah. No, I think that's super fascinating. Were there any specific things that you really wanted to toy with, with regard to the holiday? I mean, my first like inspiration was, we have to somehow make the movie lead up to a paint can scene. Right. Uh, <laughs> because it's been on my mind. And like, it's so funny. Like after I pitched this idea to, to Brian and Paul, um, I remember all these like internet articles popping up about like, what would have really happened? And I was like, what is going on? Is, is everyone having the same realization? Cause when when I'd been researching this to to like say like well would it actually kill you or not there was nothing online I, oh, I kind of had to I ended up like asking some like med school friends of mine um and and getting their thoughts and like a physics friend to tell me like what you know what is the force exactly once once you've thrown a can that has an eight foot rope from a balcony above you know um and kind of just figured out what a lot of these websites also said, which is it would break your neck or it would shatter your faceplate. So that was very interesting to me. And then uh, the the whole like, you know, looking at John Hughes, just John Hughes was so wonderfully eighties. And so he, uh, lots of other filmmakers besides him did this, but also like this tone of like teenagers, doing things that now you'd look at and be like, Oh my God, I can't believe they filmed this and people laughed and thought it was funny. Um, isn't it like 16 candles where like, Oh, which character is it? Who like, it was the, the Asian character the drunk girl and starts taking pictures of her while she's asleep. Oh, 
Yeah, I was. I, well, I didn't know if you were going for the the um, the Asian character, which is like now really insensitive. Exactly. I can't yeah. The, yeah. Just, things like there's that. There's a lot of things that I guess now we're way more sensitive to. So that was also the inspiration, which is all right. Let's let's be honest about being a teenager now, kind of like John Hughes did before. But let's also be honest about what John Hughes's characters were like, and what kind of personality type you're really talking about when you when you show those people. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting um, thinking about the teenager aspect because you have a a very young cast, and that's so risky. And I were you afraid that you wouldn't be able to find people that could pull off these roles? Because it seems like having seen the film. Uh, the cast is uh, could make or break a film like this, you know, and, and you found incredible performers, but uh, again, very risky. In, in hindsight, um, it was idiotic for me to think that we'd be able to pull this off. We really lucked out with the casting <laughs> because, uh, you know, among the other inspirations, uh, you guys know, um, another listener by the name of, uh, well, I guess I'll give him his moniker, uh, his dinner's in the oven. Yes. So his yep. dinner is in the oven and I both share this hatred of kids in movies. They're always depicted so irritatingly. Mm, yeah. Kind of idealized and like, oh, mother, <laughs> may we go to the store now? Like it's just very not how kids are. <laughs> So <laughs> a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the scenes kind of spurred from being like, well, what was it like in seventh grade? But then I guess that's a good thing because they were able to play that. But also, like, I, I guess we kind of went overboard and just wrote these absurdly difficult roles to play. And when we were casting, we went through 200 boys and – different actors kept nailing certain aspects of Luke, but no one was able to get even like half of the, the, the pie. And then Levi comes along and uh, smashes it into the earth. And we just really lucked out that he, he was able to hit all those different um, parts of the spectrum. He's, he's just so he's got such an amazing range. His performance is brilliant oh, in the film. Absolutely. I picked up the Blu-ray and I was watching the um, uh, the making of. It's one of the things I really wanted to check out uh, when I got it. And uh, you had spoken about how, you know, were you talking about the characters, how you were sort of um, more in tune with Garrett, I guess, when you were growing up. And I was wondering, not not that you would have had anything this extreme in your past, but how much of that influenced these characters and also how you sort of set things up? Like, did was there anybody from your past that reminded you of Levi? Not to that degree, I'm guessing, but were you mining anything from, um, from when you were growing up for that character? Um, and I guess the same for Garrett as well. Ooh, that's a great question. I'm going to say that... Luke was already pretty well formed from Zach. So I almost wish Zach, Zach was on here. Um, okay. the, the thing that I changed about him was in, in the original script, um, Luke was like this untouchable force who clearly was never going to miss a beat. And I added vulnerability to him. Um, I added missteps and having to, uh, 
you know, ha- having to improvise on the spot and, and having these weird, you know, um, Levi really picked up on it where if you'll notice whenever he's being his most terrifying or his most, uh, strong, mm-hmm. we'd always within the next five seconds under undermine it with his voice cracking or with him, um, making some, you know, like really silly move where you just keep getting reminded just when he's at his scariest. Oh God, this is just a 12 year old. Yeah. <laughs> like one of my favorite moments is not to, not to be too obtuse because it is after the, the surprise, but let's, let's go ahead and go into spoilers. At this point, we've already reviewed the film, uh, you know, at this point in the show. So let's, let's just give a fair spoiler warning. We're going to talk about some of the plot details. If you have not seen the movie, go away, like watch the movie right now and then, and then come back and listen to the rest of this interview. By the way, it's like 99 cents on iTunes right now. So it's, like Christmas sale. There's no, there's no excuse not to press pause because I th- yeah, let's let's get into some spoilers now. Um, so the part where Ricky pees himself. Mm-hmm. Um, if you notice, Luke's holding a gun, and the gun barrel is like in his eye socket, up against his eyeball, mm. and Luke's threatening to shoot him right then and there, and Ricky just pees himself, and so Luke goes from like. I will shoot you. I will kill you to stop it. <laughs> and he kind of <laughs> flamboyantly like, like crosses the room and puts on his like rubber cleaning gloves. Right. To clean up the mess. And it's just this lovely reminder of like, he's just a kid. And also he's kind of like a very clean kid. <laughs> that was one of the things i thought was interesting is again um in this in the making of documentary was that uh kids nowadays because of the internet i mean they haven't known a world where they don't have as you said um all the information in the world right at their fingertips that they're much smarter now but they're not emotionally uh where they need to be like maybe maybe even if they're like at 17 say uh, with their intelligence, they're still at 12 or maybe even a little less because of the, the lack of interaction now, um, you know, with, with social skills. And I, that was one of the things I thought you picked up in the movie really well, that, that these are very smart kids, but they just, they're, you know, especially with, with Lucas, he's extremely intelligent, but he's not quite, you know, he, he, he doesn't have any of that maturity that he thinks he does. You know, he, he's equating intelligence with worldliness. And I thought that was really interesting um, with that character. That's a really great way to put it. Yeah. And, and I I feel like Levi, I like, I can't give him enough credit for, for picking up on a lot of these things. I think he being, you know, if, if you're an actor, if you're a good actor and you're 12, you do have that emotional intelligence. And so he, I I think Mm -hmm. both he and Ed, played into the fact that okay we have bizarrely um high emotional intelligence let's kind of like play what our average friends are at or or uh, you know maybe they maybe they found inspiration from other people um but for sure yeah that's that's the weird that's if john hughes were to make a movie now i think his first observation would be exactly what you just said 
there's this bizarre gap between how much they know kind of like information wise and how much they know socially. Right. Now, just a, qu- a quick one thing I was wondering, um, obviously I know you, um, you had mentioned how Levi was sort of nailing everything with this role. I mean, um, and you said that, you know, he, he could handle the quieter moments. He could handle those moments where he has to, to go there, you know, where, where he just, he just loses for want of a better word, loses his shit and goes crazy. But how was he with the, the, um, I guess the, the more sexual scenes, you know, where, where he's sort of coming on to her and the truth and dare scene. Um, what was that? What, did he have any sort of difficulty with that? Or he was just, he was just game and, and he was ready to go. Uh, you know, he was in character. And if I could piggyback that question with another question, did you have to talk to these actors differently because they were young or did you just talk to them like you would any other actor? So I have to start with Levi's audition because one of the things that he did that shocked the hell out of me but was so good I put it into the movie is um, – we we did that scene where he's saying, I, I, I want to watch you f-. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely like, it's a horrifying scene. Right. Um, and it was originally written, ugh, it's one of those scenes that like, I, I wanted it to be intense, but then now looking at the pacing of the movie, it was not a place that needed to be intense. Levi did something that was so funny and so awful at the same time. He... He brushed the barrel of the gun against his lips and said, like, I'm not a pervert um, while brushing the gun against his lips. And I just remember getting goosebumps and being like, that's it. It's it's the humor of the scene, not the intensity of it. But it's this – it's incredibly intense because it's funny because it's a 12-year-old doing it. Um, So did I – did Levi have trouble with the sexuality of it? not only is the answer no, but remember how I was saying a lot of kids were having trouble hitting more than half of the pie. Right. Not a single other person who I auditioned ever got the sexuality of the role. Levi. And again, he was, when I auditioned him, he was 12 months and or 12 years and nine months old. He somehow really understood sexuality you, you kind of take it for granted but like 12 year olds if if they you know like obviously they know about sexuality at that point but they certainly don't express it or haven't figured out how to express it he totally got it and i think that comes from the fact that um i mean i don't know how good this is but like levi um aside from acting also is like the child model for ralph Lauren. oh really <laughs> oh wow yeah like like if you see like boys clothes for Ralph Lauren, it's him. Oh, so like he's incredibly striking, but also probably at an early age kind of figured out the, the sensuality of photography, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. And so I like, I, I really love to ask him where it came from. If, if, if he even can kind of like do that kind of introspection. But my guess is he kind of was exposed to the idea of like, not, not being sexual like a humpy teenager, but just kind of like playing off the sensuality of like clothing or photography mm-hmm. and definitely got to play the darker side of that with, you know, um, 
feeling the the gun against his mouth. So as far as how did I talk to him about it, I'm sure he and Ed would have been totally fine talking about it regularly because, you know, like they were super professional and like I said, like way, way more emotionally mature than you'd expect. Um, but of course, being <laughs> an adult who wanted to be responsible and also because, you know, like um, the, the Australia uh, at all times had like a, a child services person on set who was constantly watching over us like an eagle making sure that we weren't like future harming them. Right. Um, you know, I, I talked, I talked to their parents and their parents were wonderfully like Ed, Ed and Levi's parents were both very, very, you could tell the reason why they're such good, you know, guys is because their parents were so grounding and, and wonderful. So they, you know, like, um, when child services was saying you can only do this many takes of of the I want to watch you guys f- scene, um, Levi totally disarmed them by saying like it's just a word, and they kind of shut up after that. <laughs> That's hilarious. He, he yeah, he had no trouble with that stuff at all. <laughs> we had we had to put a pillow on um, on Olivia's uh, chest for the the scene the 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 truth or dare scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at, you know, like they, both Olivia and Levi were like, we would, we, we've talked about this with each other. We would both rather do it without the pillow because we want to create general, genuine reactions. Um, but I was like, we're still going to use the pillow, <laughs> but they were up for it and, and they, like, they, they weren't feeling pressured. In fact, they kind of wanted to push themselves. Um, we had, we had some fake guns. Uh, that were like fairly good replicas of the real ones, you know, like you, you would never use them in a close up. And for every possible take where they could, they wanted to use the real guns, not because we're teenagers and we want to hold real guns, but because uh, Ed and Levi and Liv were all like, it, it, it's heightened when there's a real gun in the room. Like it makes our acting, it makes our job a lot easier. So they were, you're constantly wanting to push their boundaries to create a better performance. And that coming from, you know, such young, awesome people was just so, so fun to work with. I mean, I I, I know you, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I I was going to say, I noticed, I, I, you'd mentioned how um, Olivia uh, was thinking of, um, she wanted to be an action star. And you look at her physically, and you're like, oh, I don't know, you know, you know, I don't even know if she's quite like like a Ripley from Alien. But then you watch her in this film, and you hear about what she was willing to go through. I think this what really got me was the whole thing with the spider. Yeah, you know where 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 you you were looking at the budget, and you were um, worried about well, if we do these CGI spiders, and she goes, well, just put real ones on, and you're like, well, you're you're petrified of them. She goes, yeah, but if it's going to save money. Well, I, mean, I mean, that's pretty damn gutsy, especially when you when you see that spider on her face. I mean, it got to me. <laughs> yeah, she she's the real deal. And by the way, she told me she wants to be an action star. Um, after seeing the roles that she's taken since Better Watch Out, um, right. what I think that really is is she wants to do all the roles that the other girls are too afraid to do. She's Heath Ledgering it. She's going for all the roles that everyone else is afraid to do. 
She'll have her moment of blowing up, though, again, she doesn't care. She's so grounded. She's like, I don't want to become an Insta star. At the time I was talking to her, she was 18. She's like, I'm 18. I'm just wanting to enjoy acting and I'll, I'll get there when I'm getting there. So very cool. And which means she'll get there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can't overstate like, these are not just good kid actors. These are incredible actors who are happen to be kids. All of the, and also they'd all been acting for a while, but between a wrinkle in time, which I just saw the trailer for the other day and, and the visit and stranger things. It's like, you've got the hottest young cast out there right now in this film. Yeah. Was there ever a consideration? Like maybe we hold this till next Christmas and, and put it out. <laughs> <laughs> and with even something little like, like the, the accent, the American accent that they're doing. I mean, you, these are all Australian uh, kids um, and they're doing their best American accent. I mean, I was watching, recently um a movie called dirty mary crazy larry from the 70s and it has susan george in it and she's playing doing an american accent and i heard it slip about a half dozen times i didn't hear any slipping in this movie at all not that i caught anyway as far as the accents and just that alone i think is pretty damn impressive they were really good at it there's i i i don't want to i shouldn't tell the story because it'll embarrass them but one of the actors there was a scene where they kept putting a really weird emphasis on the word. And we did like eight takes and I, I kept like, I'm like, I'm not going to do a line reading. I'm not going to do a line reading. But by, by, by scene, like, or by, by take six, I just started giving them the line reading and they still weren't able to do it. And I found out only afterwards that our accent coach had like, mm-hmm made them so afraid and hypersensitive of that sound that the actor was not able to take their mind off of it. And so I, we eventually fixed it in, in ADR, Uh but I was so confused. So to those of you guys who are out there who um, ever deal with a, uh, an accent coach or a dialect coach, um, make sure (laughs) they're telling you what they're doing and saying so that when you're confused, if something's not working, you're not just like spinning your wheels. Hmm, that's interesting. interesting. That's very interesting. Great insight. Yeah. I want another director insight because I think the hardest thing for any director to manage is tone. But I think in this film, especially, you're dealing with so many different, you know, you've got this black comedy and this kind of satirical look at millennials, and you've got this strong kind of feminist character, but she's tied up and all of these you're juggling so much at the same time. How do you think about tone and protecting tone while you're directing and how do you kind of manage that on the set? So it it depends on the tone. So like uh, this is, I like to think of this as a dark comedy horror. When people usually hear horror comedy, they think of Sam Raimi's tone, which it's very different. I, it's so hard. I feel like there's so many different types of horror comedy out there because Sam Raimi's almost feels like it's scary when it's scary, but it's mostly just a comedy about horror. But then there'll, there'll be moments of genuine shock. Um, I feel like Better Watch Out is going more for the American Psycho tone, which is like, it's definitely horrific. It's mostly horrific, but it's undercut by this like bizarre, dark comedy mm-hmm. that keeps making it fun watch yeah what would otherwise be 
undocumented where it's just a really harrowing experience it ends up being this really fun roller coaster ride where you, you know it's quotable and so so on because you've you've made it fun um the for me what i found was um you can't lean into the comedy or the horror you have to lean into the drama um to to pull off that style of of horror comedy or that tone interesting um as as long as people are invested they can go either way but if you do a joke for jokiness sake or if you just do a a scare for scare sake it throws the balance off so weirdly um i i actually just shot it like a drama that's really interesting it's fascinating because we talk about this stuff all the time. Obviously, on the podcast, we're always like trying to dissect how genre and all and all these subgenres interplay. But you, so you're saying there there are situationally funny moments. There are moments when the characters are actually joking. There are scary things that happen, but you're playing. You're just shooting for the reality of the moment and the dramatic thrust and of the character arcs and everything. Is that is that kind of yeah? The comedy. Has to come from the situation and the characters. It has to have already existed within them. The horror has to have been set up and has to feel like it's paying off in some way and it's organic to the story. And as long as you have those things, you can bounce back and forth between horror and comedy all you want because people are invested. So my two favorite things about the movie are number one, that it's constantly evolving, that what you think is happening is not exactly what is happening and it was interesting because there were multiple occasions where i was like i could be totally happy watching this version of the film <laughs> you know it's it starts out with kind of subverting the trope of falling for the babysitter with the home invasion film and i, I would have watched that movie i was happy to watch that movie but then it goes a level deeper and it's actually smarter than you think it is initially and it completely subverts our expectations again of who we thought Luke was and how intensely creepy his relationship with Ashley is. And for that matter, how intensely creepy his relationship with Garrett is. And I'm not sure there's a question there, but would you care to respond to that idea of kind of constantly evolving what we think the story is and how you kind of uh, manage that? I'll tell you the thing that I was aware of. I knew that because this was a story about 12 year olds, um, I could play a really fun game through the whole movie of where's the line. Hmm. And so I think the reason why it's evolving and yet feels really organic is once, once Luke pistol whips Ashley and she falls down the stairs, you've actually already been told everything you need to know about him. You just don't realize it yet. Hmm. You figure like, Oh God, what a dumb mistake. You know, Garrett comes out and he's like, what, what the did you just do? Oh my God, what did you just do? And then we cut to this like, bizarro next 15 minutes of like you know the audience is like i do not know where this is going um you know it's it's almost uncomfortable because you're like what's what's the tone like what am i supposed to hold on to at this point um but then you settle in and you're like okay so luke's taking it too far he's trying to get out of it um garrett definitely wants to get out of it Ashley wants to get out of it. They, they just need to figure out how to get out of this Mexican standoff. Mm. And then it evolves even more. And you're like, oh, no, Luke wants all this to happen. Right. Um, so because he's 12 years old, you would never have ever have ever guessed that about him. Right. Um, 
So it's evolving because it's I, I'm playing the the game of where's the line. <laughs> it also does what you know when I, I I've got kids and I have to go to a lot of really terrible kids movies and I always appreciate the films that work on two levels for the children and for the adults. This kind of has that element with with horror fans or or thriller fans where you can just sit back and appreciate it at face value, but you're also constantly doing something else at the same time. And I, I really appreciated that about the movie. And, and like you said, uh, you know, I can appreciate a film that's pretty overt with its message, like undocumented or even maybe a little bit more masked, like get out. But this film, you could definitely watch this and not think that it's trying to say anything, but it's not one of those films like Jay got after me. We re- we reviewed Christmas evil, another, you better watch out movie on a previous episode of, of our Christmas show. And I was kind of trying to bring a lot of theory to the table when we were talking about that. And he's like, you know, you're doing a lot of work that the filmmakers weren't doing here to t- kind of try to make your point. <laughs> and, um, and I don't think that's the case with better watch out. I think there's a lot going on there. And I think if you, for the for the thoughtful viewer that wants to go back and especially on a second viewing the movie completely changes which is great i love a film that um rewards repeat viewings but there's a lot underneath do you want to comment on that or do you prefer to leave it kind of bubbling underneath i i'm okay to comment on a little bit i i i don't want to um i as much as it's fun to hear exactly what the filmmaker was thinking, it also kind of takes away from yeah. your, um, you don't want to tell people your, how to think own, about the movie. Like, right. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I, I want people to be, um, uh, active about it and not just be like, Oh, there's the thing he was talking about. There's a thing he was talking about. But I will say, um, one of the things about Zach's scripts was or uh, original script was it was, I'm not gonna say it was it was misogynistic, but like Ashley's character was not what she is now. Um, she she kind of like I said, it was a very hopeless story where Luke just had control the whole time, and so I, I went into the movie with this challenge in mind. I was like, how do you make a movie where a girl is tied up for the second half and it's a feminist story? Yeah, if you're gonna watch it a second time pay attention to how um, every guy in the movie has a different way of trying to own Ashley. Um, and it, it, to me, it was, it was a chance to talk about how at a very early age we're taught how to treat women and what our expectations of women um, are with regard to sexuality. That's so interesting because the one character who you don't expect it from that does kind of jump out at me was is the Patrick Warburton character. I always think, what is he doing right now? Like, what is his? What are your intentions, sir? <laughs> and that's even interesting, even from this character. You know, you're getting a little bit of that, and obviously, it goes much further as the film progresses. But and dads do this all the time with babysitters. I feel, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like. Kind of like, oh, <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> okay, go on, go on your date with your wife now. Um, and it's kind of, you know, we, we, we look at it as like the harmless, um, but we've always talked about this as being, oh, it's so harmless. You know, like a 12 year old who has a crush on his babysitter, that's harmless. That's just, you know, like the, the thing that you laugh about in the John Hughes movie. Um, but 
it's really, really interesting that 2017 became the year of like uh, Me Too Mm -hmm. because I feel like it's about time to talk about like, okay, I get that it's harmless in that it didn't create any physical harm right then then and there, but like, is it indicative of of something that's not harmless? That's great. One thing I wanted to just mention real quick about the Patrick Warburton character. I liked how... You know, it could have been one note because the wife was obviously in control. She was, uh, you know, quote unquote, wearing the pants of the family. But yet Patrick Warburton's character always seems as if he's just kind of edging her on. Like he's having fun with her personality, (laughs) you know? Like he's just sort of pushing her buttons and having a great time doing it throughout the whole movie. And I really liked that about him because he could have just sat back and been a yes dear or whatever, and it would have been fine. It's not like he's on screen all that much, but he takes that character and he adds just that little bit more to it. Like, you're not really getting to me, but I know I'm getting to you. (laughs) I have to give entire credit to Patrick on that. It was totally, I I don't know whether, because we didn't discuss it, but I, I noticed what you're talking about where like, he's kind of egging her. I'm sure it was a conscious choice. Um, but yeah, you're right. He he's he's not kind of like just the sad sack dad that you'd expect to be paired up with the very kind of like helicopter parentness of of Virginia. Right. And I love that. I thought that was great. Just those few scenes with him were were the, the, the between the two of them it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, they, they were very entertaining. I wanted to – I've been debating whether or not to ask you this, but I have to know because we were talking about um, Silent Night, Deadly Night previously and about how you know these parents groups were upset about Santa Claus being turned into this villain. And I wonder, did you ever encounter actors or you know, you're dealing with young people, so their parents as well, uh, audiences, producers who were upset about – children of this age being so diabolical for sure child services in australia was was definitely horrified by the whole movie and while they're not allowed to censor it exactly um they could make it very difficult to do certain you know like to to do more than one take of something and so on so um they they were my first taste into this. Weirdly, um, kids and their parents had no issues with the movie, most <laughs> likely because those parents were like, my kid is this age, and I totally get where this movie's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> Evil little and of course, like so one of my favorite actors who who tried out for Luke, um, he was he was fantastic in so many ways. He he admitted to me, and he's been in some really big movies. Uh, he admitted to me, he's like, I've never finished any of the scripts before that I've, I've starred in. Um, but this is the first script I've ever read from cover to cover. So thank you for writing this. This was awesome. Um, I think it kind of tapped into something that a lot of 12 year olds loved. So I don't think they had an issue. I didn't meet any parents who had issues or if parents did have an issue, their kids just didn't audition. Um, I have heard a lot from audiences and have been tweeted a lot about, you know, like, hmm. how can you bring this negativity into the world? Really? Um, you know, stuff like that. So it's, wow. you know, it's tough. I've definitely learned a lot since Undocumented about how to make something more fun 
um, and and commercial and and kind of accessible. Um, again, not not that undocumented is not accessible, but it's it's certainly kind of like like you guys said, like it's 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 a harsh it's a harsher ride. Right. Um, but I'm also learning there's no like one line that you have to go find. Um, everyone's a different place on the spectrum. All you can do is is shoot for the majority, I guess. Yeah. Well, and horror as is dealing with taboos, right? So any good horror director is always going to be facing this kind of criticism, I would think, because you're you're touching on taboos. Uh, you're, you know, and, and you know it's funny because we covered you know Stephen King's the Stephen King filmography, and he talks about comedy and horror being these two places where like I'm going to tell you the truth, like no one else will tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth, and that's why it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I like that idea a lot me too it's it's funny um the three genres where i think you can do social commentary in um hilariously one of them's not drama because (laughs) um very preachy and and melodramatic and and saccharine or or whatever um it's comedy horror and sci-fi is really good because you can talk about racism and everything except it's just between two different alien races. So you don't really, you, you feel safe to talk about it. I've got two questions I wanted to ask you, but I know you got to get going soon. So, um, um, okay. So I just wanted to ask you kind of a general as a, as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, what did you learn on this production that it was a lesson in directing or, or, or storytelling that you're going to take with you on future projects? What was, was there, was there one thing that really stood out to you? Like, okay, I didn't know this before and I've now gained this insight. Ooh, that's a really good question. We had 30 days to shoot this film. And um, I I paired myself with this really, really talented cinematographer who's also kind of notoriously on the slower side. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ended up um, being being challenging because the movie is just as as pretty as I could have possibly hoped for, but we were pulling on pulling off nine setups per day on average. Yeah. Which, if you were to ask Ryan Johnson, is probably the the number for like the Last Jedi. Sure. Um, so for an indie movie that only had thirty days to shoot and not one hundred and eighty days to shoot, it was really challenging. So um, I think the thing that's definitely on my mind for my next movie um, is how do you. Because no matter what, you you never have enough time and you never have enough money. Um, How do you pull off visually engaging material um, but also have enough choices so that you're not in the edit? Because we we kind of – you know we we really lucked out. There were a couple scenes where if if, that one take hadn't have made that kind of last mistake at the end, we wouldn't have been able to cut from one thing to another. Um, Yeah, that's scary. So I was there. Were you stressed out the whole time, like pushing, pushing with with the cinematographer? Was that I? So on January thirteenth, the day that we started production, I had no gray hairs in my beard. (laughs) Uh, Five weeks later, I had a patch on the (laughs) left side of my chin. um, That has not prelit. Didn't you tell me we were entirely pre-lit and we still only pulled off. I know it's crazy. crazy. Again, 
movie's really pretty. And a lot of people say like, God, like you chose to not go for the horror look. You went for this like almost broad John Hughes look. And I was like, yeah, it's, I mean, again, Carl did this amazing, amazing lighting job. He was such a perfectionist, but it it was, it was tough. So the, I think the thing that I'm going into my next film with is a, I need to get better at, I mean, this next film has a lot of V effects. Um, so the, the, that'll be my challenge for this next film is like, okay, let's, let's get into the world of how do you, how do you incorporate the effects, but also like, how do you, how are you both visually engaging, emotionally engaging and pull off enough takes to, you know, like if I, if I could have like 15 shots per day, I'd be in a great place, but how do you, how do you juggle all that? That's, that's a really tough thing. And it's kind of, that's the art. Am I allowed to say what you told me about your next project or not? Um, I forget. What did I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you a little bit this way. Um, it, I think whenever we find a really talented filmmaker like yourself, that's you know er, still early in their career, we hope that they're going to stick with the horror genre and keep delivering horror films and not go and do a Fast and the Furious or a or a DC movie, although that might be best for your, for your personal income. We want, we want to keep you guys horror directors. It sounds from what you told me, and I won't say anything about it, that it, that, it, that your next film is still somewhat in the horror space. You talked about some of the films that maybe influenced you and, and those were horror, horror films. Um, also broader than horror films though. They're not just a straight horror film, but they have elements of comedy and, and kind of that eighties, you know, nostalgia vibe and everything like that but you're also working if i'm allowed to say with a with a very big producing partner on the film so it sounds like it it could go to a a different level in terms of uh the scale you're working on i don't know well i don't know how i'm dancing around this why don't i just ask you you, i i know what you're saying now so um my next project i can't say who it's with but you're right it's like I totally have an 800 pound gorilla in my, in my corner. It's Mm -hmm. so cool. And they are, um, I'm they're They're shockingly, uh, nurturing. I'm really, really enjoying this so far. Um, and, uh, since we last spoke, um, like a budget's been put together, a schedule's been put together. We're reading, we're meeting with VFX companies right now who are bidding on the project. So it's really, it's cool. It looks like it's happening, you know, knock on wood. You, it's not, it's never really happening until you're halfway through the shoot <laughs> and then someone spent too much money to let it stop. Um, <laughs> but, uh, this one's definitely going to be the scariest thing I've ever done. Okay. I, you know, better watch out and undocumented are in the end, they're, they're kind of more just psychological thrillers that are, are violent mm. or, or bloody or gory. Um, this one is very little blood, but more kind of in the James Wan style of like, I I want to I want to I want to scare the hell out of you. Yeah. So there's that. I'm very happy um, about. I'm very very happy to hear you say that. <laughs> it's it's so, it's so much fun. I can't I can't wait to like again. I I'm not the biggest fan of jump scare salads. Right. But. There's definitely some jumps in this movie that are awesome, but also my favorite scares are the ones where it's not a jump scare, 
but it's that feeling of, oh my God, don't let that happen. Yes. Um, yes. And there's lots right. of that. I love right. that. Yes. So, yeah. Well put. Like, yeah. Um, like the, 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 you know, in Jaws when, um, what's his name? Uh, Quinn, like just slides down the boat in, and, yeah. and is like two-stepping, trying to not fall into the shark's mouth and eventually <laughs> does that, that right. type of horror. Right. Um, what, what's, what is that? Is that dread? Is it? Yeah, I think it's imp- yeah, that it's impending it's, doom, right? Impending yeah. doom. Yeah. Like you're thinking, oh, maybe he's got a chance. Maybe. Oh, he never had a chance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's almost more, more actiony. It's, it's hard to describe, but I've got a lot of that in it. It's really fun. And then I'm polishing my next script, which um, I pitched to um, a director who I don't want to give it away, but I'll say we've already mentioned him sometime today um, in in this podcast. Huh. Uh, I met like one of my idols and pitched this movie to him, and and he, you know, I've pitched this to a lot of companies, but like it's been a very good response. Um, it's a weird, I don't know how to describe this tone because it doesn't exist very much. Like, and it's a way bigger budget movie than I've ever written before. It's probably like a 20 to $30 million film. And like, if I were to describe um, Jurassic Park to you, it, you'd say, oh, that's a creature feature. It's a horror creature feature. Right. It's about dinosaurs like attacking people. But it's not a creature feature and no one would ever call Jurassic Park horror. What is that genre? We've definitely had this debate on this show. So, (laughs) (laughs) when Jurassic World came out, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, it's a it's an adventure thriller with a beastly freak. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a a a fun roller coaster adventure with horror thriller set pieces is Uh, what I like to call it. Yeah, it sounds great, man. So what I'm writing right now is totally that. And it's so hard to put in a box because there's only a couple movies that do it. Jurassic Park's one of them where I, I started out making this just a horror movie. But as I was writing it, I was like, this is too fun. It's just too fun to call it a horror movie. But there's moments that are definitely horrific. So whatever you want to call that, that, that one I'm also really excited about. It's not as scary as the one – I'm hopefully setting up right now, but it's, it's kind of like better watch out. And then like, it's, it's way more fun than you would expect. So. Well, thank you for giving us a little bit of our crack that we need to, to and I promise to I'll give you guys. The <laughs> That's great. And I, I did have one last question I wanted to ask uh, about better watch out. Cause you had talked about how it took you a while to, you know, with some of the setups, um, I remember M. Night Shyamalan uh, on The Sixth Sense talking about how he was told by people, be ready to cut your favorite scene out of the movie um, if it if it's not going to work. or what, Is there anything that you ended up cutting out, whether you weren't able to shoot it or what out of this movie that you wish you could have? Yes. My favorite scene in the movie, it's not cut, but it's different. Uh, um, we're, we're already in spoiler territory, so we're allowed to... Yeah. I can talk about this. Yep. The moment when Luke hits Ricky in the back of the head with the baseball bat. <clears throat> uh, if you remember, Ricky goes down and Luke goes, woo, and he spins around. And if you yeah. look in that shot before the cut, you see him hold the baseball bat to his mouth. Yes. And it's because in the script, my plan was um, for us to reverse – 
And and currently in the movie, it's just him kind of like tap dancing with the baseball bat and kind of just like twirling it around almost like um, a clockwork orange. Right. But in the uh, that was just the last safety I took. My producers were like, in case we can't do this, we have to do a safety. And we ended up using the safety. Mm. Um, he brought the baseball bat to his mouth because uh, he was about to sing along with the song that's playing and it was last Christmas by wham. Oh, right. And uh, I had him sing the, the chorus, um, almost like a karaoke singer in the hallway, oh, um, dancing to his song. And it was going to be a very Michael Madsen, wonderful Levi did it so well. Oh man. It was, uh, it was the coolest. That's so ever. funny. Now that you say that I see Michael Madsen in him in that moment. That's so funny. Right. It's and and you can kind of I I I ended up um, having him also dance at the end of the movie. Levi's this phenomenal dancer; he's so good. <laughs> and it's something that was not in the script, but when I when I saw him kind of like pull some moves, I was like, "What the fuck? How is this not in the film?" <laughs> so, um, and as far as you know, like we were a low budget movie; we did not have much money planned for the film. But we had gotten a hold of, I think it was Sony, um, who who kind of like own, you know, like makes part of the decision about last Christmas. Right. Sony said yes, they agreed to like a very reasonable number where we would get to use that song for sixty seconds, and and Sony said yes. Uh, George Michael's reps said yes. Everybody said yes, and then the last person who had to decide was George Michael. And he read the script and he said, I don't want to be uh, associated with this. Wow. Yeah, we we did get to hear this story when you were in Salt Lake City. And at the time you said, I hope I can put it on the DVD. Unfortunately, yeah. that is not the case. But no, I, I guess. Yeah. That's, someday. So, you got, someday. I hope someone out there leaks this on to YouTube at some point. <laughs> or, or maybe, maybe someday um, George's wonderful uh generous family decides you know what this scene is so awesome how could we pass this up yeah because it 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 honestly was my favorite scene in the movie it wow. it's uh i i love that song yeah i well, feel George's like people are so awesome we need to also mention that <laughs> <laughs> so and it, it's so sad that george you know like i i i grew up on his music and it was so oh, sad yeah. that he passed but it was particularly yeah. sad that he he passed right after telling us no. Oh man, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that that might be the the nail in the coffin, no pun intended. Oh, um, <laughs> he still got that so, edge. He still got it. I like it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a scene that um, I it I have still works beautifully, it. but I can imagine right. that being such a fun moment in the film. Yeah, it's so fun, and it's again like. Um, it was another one of those examples of like at his most menacing and cruel, let's remind the audience that he's just a kid. Awesome. And right now he just has a bunch of adrenaline after having his most violent moment in his life. And he just wants to sing. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I, I probably, I literally have like three more hours of questions for you about better watch out, but um, I'll have to save that for another day. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll continue the conversation whenever you guys want. Absolutely. Um, so tell people, if you don't mind, where they can get a copy of your film, which we 
definitely all recommend that they do. It is still in theaters in the UK. And actually, if anyone here uh, listening is in Dallas, uh, I'm flying uh, in to do a Q&A at the Texas Theater in Dallas on the 13th. Um, their their website uh, actually just put tickets on today, the day they were recording. Um, oh, cool. So if you want to see it in the theater, there's that. Um, if you want to watch it at home, um, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray. It's also everywhere to to rent and buy amazon itunes voodoo playstation xbox all that um and also we just started streaming on shutter last week so uh we're not on netflix because shutter offered a really wonderful deal to us that we could not pass up that's great so um it's for free on shutter we again appreciate you bringing people to to horror to if they want to see your yeah. film. Ninety nine cents is a great deal for this, folks. But honestly, I would go further. I also got the Blu Ray. It looks beautiful. Uh, the the cinematography that almost killed you transferred very well to Blu Ray. So. Yeah, yes, it did. <laughs> it was worth it. They can follow you on Twitter as well. Is that right? Yeah the 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 easiest place to find me. I'm I'm super uh, responsive. Is on Twitter. Just uh, at Peckover. That's it. Cool. All right, Chris, thank you so much. Honestly, the only thing that could top this would be a director's commentary. (laughs) So thank you to Chris Peckover for joining us. Always a pleasure to talk to him, and we wish him the best in the future with his new projects. We'll be keeping an eye on it. We're now going to do a brand new segment that I'm super excited about. And we are calling the Collector's Crypt. As you know, Dave here has a DVD infatuation. I'm something of a collector myself. We just love physical media, Dave. Absolutely. Yep. It can't can't beat it. Movie magazines, movie books. I collect vinyl, Blu-rays, of course. And so there are so many cool boutique companies out there, like Vinegar Syndrome and Synapse Films and Arrow Video and criterion and oscilloscope and and blue underground and shout factory and scream factory all these awesome companies who are putting out great horror content in kind of these cool packaging and alternative art you've got companies like death waltz records and waxwork records and mondo who are putting out amazing posters and vinyl we want to talk about all that stuff we don't get we mention it in passing occasionally but we don't really review it so we're going to do kind of technical reviews of those things, hold it in our hands and talk about it. And for our very first one, we have got this amazing book from printedinblood.com called The Thing Art Book. And as the thing I mentioned up at the top of the show, 350 artists, 400 new pieces of art uh, in this collection celebrating this film of John Carpenter, one of my all-time favorite films. And uh, it's got a foreword by Eli Roth and an afterword by John Carpenter himself. It's really an awesome book. And Dave and I are going to review that, I guess, for our, our very first Collector's Crypt discussion and then give away a copy. The people at Printed in Blood were nice enough to give us a copy to give away to our listeners. So, Dave... Um, You've had a chance to look at the book. What were your thoughts? Uh, it's it's really amazing. I mean, you know, some of the art, and I think it's one of the very first ones there. It looks like, you know, it's like a, a kid's rendition with a crayon. 
That Cran one is actually Eli Roth. Drew That's when he was 12, 12 years old. old. Okay. It was at the beginning. I know it was before the forward. So that makes sense. But some of these things are amazing. It's, it's, it's takes on the poster, which I thought was really cool. It's really something. I would love to own some of the posters they show in this. You know, some, some of those artwork oh, posters. That, I would love to have some of those. Yeah, and I mentioned this again at the start of the show. There are poster artists, there are fine artists, there are comic book artists, digital illustrators. It's a wide variety of styles represented here. And there are some legends like William Stout, Kelly Jones, Kyle Lambert. You know, Kyle Lambert did the Stranger Things poster most recently. Oh. Gary Pollan, who we've mentioned a lot on the show. Yes. Francesco Franco Villa, Tony Harris. I mean, these are these are big names in the illustrating world and in the comic book world, and uh, yeah, just uh, but you know, honestly, I don't know how many of these people I can name before it gets extremely boring for our audience. There were some of these posters that just blew my mind. Oh, Scott yeah. Wolston's piece, Jeremy Paler's piece, Eric Wilson's piece. I would kill to have one of those posters hanging on my wall. And the thing that's interesting about this, and I wasn't sure how I would react to this, to be honest, because at first I was like, well, what is this exactly? Are these alt movie posters? It's not It's not art from the time, although they do put some really cool Rob Boutine mm-hmm. yeah. artwork in here as well. But, um, you know, these are just inspired by the thing. Am I really going to like this? You do. There are 350 artists, even though I would say 50 of them aren't my style. It's still 300 right. artists who right. I love it's, their it's, work. It's, you know? really, it's really amazing. Um, I mean, and it's a great tribute to this and, movie, too. 35 years. It's a yeah. great tribute to this film. It is my favorite um, uh, John Carpenter mo- uh, movie just ahead of Halloween. Um, you know, Halloween's number four. My fourth favorite horror movie. The Thing is the th- my third I just love it, and uh, to see these collections and to see what um, some of these artists, what they've come up with, is it's remarkable. So there's two cool things I want to mention about this. One of them is that just due to the sheer number, almost every major moment in the film is represented here. And the way the collection goes, they kind of group the different parts of the film together. So you'll have 20 images of you know the blood testing scene and then 20 images of you know uh, Kurt Russell with a flamethrower you know what I mean and so it's kind of cool because you see these different moments and then the depictions by other artists some of them are you know images right out of the film or promotional materials kind of recreated in these new ways others are completely original takes on these scenes that are creating kind of new iconography for the film. So that I thought was awesome. The other thing that's cool is when you have this much art based around something you love, I mean, like you say, you love the thing. I love the thing. Uh, This switches between my number one and number two favorite film of all time, depending on the day you ask me. It is between this and John Carpenter's Halloween for my number one spot. It's so much fun to look at these images from this thing you love it, whether, you know, even if I don't necessarily love the style initially, like if it's a comic book artist style, it's not necessarily my favorite type of art, but how cool is it to look like I'm looking at a comic book of yeah. the thing? Yeah, I guess that's, really that's, awesome. that's just fun Absolutely. to look at, mm-hmm. you know? And the fine artists that are represented here are the ones who really blew my mind because 
there are these beautiful paintings from scenes from the movie. Um, yeah, they're amazing. That I just loved. If I don't know if this is boring, I am going to just rattle off a few yeah, more names. Sure, seriously, like yeah. 50 artists. Um, Rio Burton, Pest Maester, Cristiano Sequeria. I apologize. I'm butchering a lot of these names. Rafael Alvarez, Justin Curry, Ben Turner, Ninjabot, Dave Muscati, Chad Michael Ward, Adam Cockerton, Brian Cochran. I, I mean, honestly, I could go on. These are literally, honestly, things that would hang on my wall. I love them so much. Easily. You know, I'm not... I'm not being hyperbolic. These are pieces that are so incredible. You know, I would decorate my home. I with agree. Them, so, so this is a really cool thing. I, I guess printed in blood is already in talks to do their second and third book. And they have not yet revealed what the books will be. But as I understand it, artists can submit their work for inclusion in these books. I didn't hear exactly how this book came together, but it seems from what I could glean that, yeah, they opened up submissions for people to send in their artwork. And pretty soon they are going to be announcing what their second and third book are going to be. And submissions will also be open for artists. So I would recommend following them on Instagram. If you like to see all these beautiful pictures, or you can also follow them on Twitter at printed in blood and stay tuned. If you're an artist to see when you can contribute to the next book. If you're someone like me, who just appreciates holding this stuff in your hands buy a copy. They're relatively inexpensive mm-hmm. for what you're getting. I mean, this is a really seriously, it's a high quality piece of work Definitely. here. So could- I can't recommend it highly enough. And let's give away one of these books to one of our very, very lucky listeners. Who's going to receive this. We posted this to the horror movie podcast, Twitter page. You're seriously missing out. If you're not on Twitter, and follow, following us right. there on some of these cool giveaways. In order to qualify, uh, people had to retweet this post and then follow both us and Printed in Blood on Twitter for a chance to win. We had 63 nice. entries in this contest. We only have one book to give away. Who is it going to be? Let's spin the wheel. And our winner of the Thing Art Book is... Jeff Hernandez from Cleveland, Ohio at Lannister forever on Twitter. Congratulations, Jeff. Email me at the Wolfman, Josh at gmail.com with your mailing address. And I will ship this out to you. Thank you to everybody for participating in that giveaway. And I don't know. How did that first collector's crypt go, Dave? It was a little it was, manic. But it, but, um, it's a, it's we'll, a start, it's a, and I'm looking forward to where we go uh, from here. Okay, well, let's continue the Christmas present giveaways and get into the other giveaways we have to do. We've got all kinds of awesome gifts for our listeners, and let's start with Ghoulish Gary. So in order to enter this contest, you needed to follow Gary on Twitter, follow Horror Movie Podcast on Twitter, and RT retweet our post right and so following those rules we got 44 entries into this contest and i am just going to spin the wheel here um i typically i like to pull it out of a habit because i have to be looking at the twitter here i'm kind of just going to you know do the thing like when they spin the globe and put down their finger i'm going to scan through the names and put my finger down 
and we'll just see who wins here. So again, this is for one of four ghoulish Gary limited edition stickers from Scream and Suspiria and Friday the 13th. And so we'll do those giveaways. Now we'll do four of those. And our first winner here is going to be Max. That is at maxed out 89. That's a from Seattle, Washington and Dallas, Texas. So Max, you have won one of these cool ghoulish Gary stickers. Let's do another one. We've got Owl. It's Al Justel on Twitter from Chelmsford, Ontario, Canada. So Al, you've won one of the ghoulish Gary stickers. Let's do another one. Coleman Wiederhold from also from Texas. So Coleman, you've won one of the ghoulish Gary stickers. Congratulations. And the last Ghoulish Gary sticker will go to Graham the Haunted Marshmallow. Graham the Mallow. Congratulations. You won the last of these stickers. So email me at thewolfmanjosh at gmail.com with your mailing address, and I will send you guys those cool Ghoulish Gary stickers. Thanks again to Gary Pullen and to Juan. And remember, check out Gary's book, Ghoulish, The Art of Gary Pullen. You can find that on Amazon. The first order or actually sold out almost immediately. So I think you have to pre-order it now, but definitely check that out. What do we got next, Dave? All right. Next we have the um, Fright Rags uh, t-shirt, the Silent Night, Deadly Night. It looks like the winner is Adam C. Uh, it's at uh, Aconte Design, and it's from Pittsburgh, PA. All right, cool. Hometown boy for you. Well, yeah. Yeah, close by anyway. All right, cool. Well, congratulations to Adam. Definitely thanks to uh, Fright Rags for providing this uh, this shirt. I have several of them myself. Fright Rags is amazing. Uh, and this uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night shirt looks um, looks great. Up next, we are going to give away two copies of Hell House LLC on DVD. We had 58 entries for this contest, and we have here Tammy Turner, Taminator Turner on Twitter. She is from Wisconsin. Let's do it again. And this one goes to PC Hassler. That's PCH Nilbog on Twitter. I don't know if they're from Nilbog, (laughs) but... (laughs) So PC Hassler, get in touch, and we will send you this Hellhouse LLC DVD. Thank you so much to Found Footage Critic and POV Horror for providing us and our listeners with those DVDs. Yeah, that's great. Next up, we are going to head over to iTunes to look at some of our faithful listeners who have left us reviews. Hopefully five-star reviews and subscribed, although, you know, we're not going to play favorites. We, we would appreciate if you have not subscribed and left a review that you that you do so. All right, so we're giving away now. We have a, uh, a Friday the 13th Blu-ray, uh, the original Friday the 13th. We also have a DVD for Monster House. Okay, the first winner is Pastor Matt R., um, his awesome. review is insightful and in-depth reviews. Be sure to check out 
the web page as well. So, uh, uh, Pastor Matt, if you want to uh, send us an email, let us know what your choice is, whether you would like the uh, Friday the 13th Blu-ray or the Monster House DVD. And the other will go to Wes Bones. Uh, his review was, if you're a movie fan, and even more if you're a horror movie fan, this is the best podcast, period. I get so excited every time there's a new episode. So thank you very much for that. Choose as well, Wes, uh, whether you would like the Friday the 13th or the uh, Monster House DVD. Awesome. And then next, we are going to give away two horror movie podcast t-shirts. The two we are giving away are the Peter Strain design shirt, which if people have not seen that yet, it's pretty cool. And um, it's got like a microphone with a bunch of horror movie icons in there. And I I like it a lot. You can see all of these listeners design t-shirts that are available at teespring.com slash stores slash horror movie cast. And we are going to give away one of the Peter Strain t-shirts here. You can get it uh, for men or women cuts in any size. Let's see. And the winner is going to be Go Boilers. They left a five-star review on iTunes. Go Boilers says, I have so many good things to say about this podcast and the hosts, but I'll just say this. If you like horror movies, you do not want to miss this podcast. They are so dedicated and thorough. I love that they rate and review big-name horror movies and franchises, but also introduce me to other little-known horror movies that I go and find and watch in my free time. Absolutely love this podcast. Great. Thank you, Go Thank Boilers. You. Yeah, we appreciate that. And email me at thewolfmanjoshgmail.com. Let me know which T-shirt you would prefer, men's or women's cut, and what size, and we will get that shipped out to you. That is the Peter Strain Icon shirt. Nice. We're also going to give away one of these cool shirts designed by Sharon Rowan that is uh, inspired by the 2017 movie It. It, it says Loser. And the, the S is crossed out with a big red V, so it says Lover. This is our Lover's Club t-shirt. Also, men's or ladies' cut. Let us know which one you want and in what size. And our winner for this one is going to be T. Kaiser. T. Kaiser left a five-star review. My favorite horror podcast, hands down. This is by far my favorite podcast. The cast is great and genuinely amazing people. Very kind. Each member of this cast have different opinions and views on a variety of topics within the horror realm. There's intelligent conversation with great laughs. If you like in-depth horror movie reviews, this is the show for you. Subscribe. Trust me. Do it now. T. Kaiser flattery will get you everywhere. So uh, go ahead and let us know which Lover's Club t-shirt you would like, which cut and which size, and we will get that shipped out to you immediately. Okay, finally, we are going to give away these awesome Ghoulish Gary pins from Mondo that Juan bought on behalf of the podcast. He said we could keep some of the stuff if we want. Honestly, I think I'm going to put away this Halloween 2 pin for Jack because I know he loves that yeah. poster so much. It's the uh, Jack Lantern with the skull face. Sorry, listeners. You can buy that from Ghoulish Gary probably or, or via Mondo. 
I'm going to hold on to that one for Jay of the Dead. We also have three other pins. We've got a cool Nightmare on Elm Street Freddy pin, a Friday the 13th uh, hockey mask and 3D pin uh, from Friday the 13th Part 3, and a Halloween 2 pin with the crying blood Michael Myers mask. So, Dave, do you want to give that one away first to a lucky person on our iTunes who's left a review? Sure. Take a look here. James Varnado 87. This is a truly amazing podcast. I have not seen nearly as many horror movies as these guys, but I love hearing them talk about them. These guys deserve to be paid for the amount of work and time that goes into each episode. Keep up. That's a great point. Keep up the good work guys. Yes. We thank you for that. (laughs) So, yeah, James Varnado, V-A-R-N-A-D-O, 87. Very cool. Thank you, James. You are the winner of the Halloween 2 Michael Myers pin. And now let's give away this Friday the 13th Part 3 3D pin. Just flip through here. This one is going to go to Dick Holleran. Like horror. This podcast is a must. Five-star review. I love horror movies. Love them to pieces ever since I was a kid. While it's great that there are so many out there to choose from, especially if you stream content, it's also difficult to get a recommendation on Good versus Drek from a reliable source. Since I started listening to the horror movie podcast, I think I can declare this problem solved. The hosts, Jay the Dead, Wolfman Josh, and Dr. Shock, have so much knowledge of not only the genre but movies in general. That's truly astounding. The reviews are spot on, and each host brings unique perspective and insight for each discussion. They give killer recommendations and inspire you to go back and revisit movies you've already seen. What more can I say? These guys do a great job, and I can't wait to hear more. If you love horror movies, you need to start listening now. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Dick. This is from back in 2014. Dick may not be listening anymore, but if you're still with us, Dick, get in touch, and you can claim this. Friday the 13th, part three pin. Congratulations. And then lastly, we just have the Freddy Krueger Nightmare on Elm Street pin. Dave, pick a lucky winner. You there, Dave? Yeah, I'm here. You fall asleep? I did for a second. (laughs) All right, so let's find another iTunes one here. All right, how about this one? Uh, We have... Dr. Nightmare in Chicago. Without embarking in TMI territory, suffice to say there are many thousands of people like myself who suffer chronic, unending pain. Finding HMP has been a bomb on these many sleepless nights when slumber just won't come to steal me away from the pain of reality. On one of those nights, I found myself in a mood to contemplate my favorite horror movie, Halloween. And so I searched for a podcast to listen to and found HMP and their discussion of the Halloween franchise. Just minutes into the podcast, I was wrapped up in the knowledgeable, fun, and oftentimes lively discussion of my favorite film. It was like listening to my group of friends discussing the movie. And just like that, the pain faded away and I could relax and laugh along with the podcast. So thank you for providing wow. and putting out the H- putting out the HMP Horror Movie Podcast. I look forward to each episode as it serves as great medicine to escape from reality 
and consider the finer points of horror cinema. If you like horror movies, you must listen to this podcast. So to mimic Jay of the Dead after such an effusive review, I give the podcast a 5 out of 10 with a smile face. Just kidding. Couldn't resist. In reality, it's a 10 out of a 10 any day of the week. Wow, that that was incredible. Thank yes. you for that, Thank actually. You. Those are the kinds of kind words that make it all Absolutely. worthwhile. So, and, and congratulations, Dr. Nightmare in Chicago. And congratulations to all our winners. Thank you guys for supporting us. If you're, if you're following us on Twitter, we appreciate it. If you've left us a review, especially a five-star review, we appreciate it. And we will try to reward you every once in a while like this. And I th- I'm, I'm so thankful for our sponsors who gave us such cool content. And to our listener, Juan, who was one of our listeners of the year in years past. This is why he's such a good guy. He just goes out and buys these awesome pins to give away to other listeners. What a, what a cool dude. Thanks to yes, thank Juan. You, thank Juan. you so much, sir. That will bring us to the end of our show. It's epic. I'm going to have a ton of editing to do. But <laughs> we did it. <laughs> we, we've made it to the end. We hope everyone is having a great holiday season. And we hope that this podcast finds you well on one of our favorite holidays. Dave, where can people find you online? Find me at dvdinfatuation.com. I'm getting down toward the end. I um, uh, have 20 left. And it's... Uh, it's continuing strong. Um, um, uh, my, my goal at this point, and I have it mapped out to the point that I think I can do this, is I will be posting uh, number 2,500 one hour before midnight East Coast on December 31st. So I will Very close cool, out the man. year. Close out the year with number 2,500 is my plan. Um yeah, and it's, it'll be good to it'll be good to close out the year with that. Um, and uh, you can find me at Twitter at DVD Infatuation, uh, Facebook, and also Instagram. I'm on there as well. And other podcasts: the Universal Monsters Cast, the We Deal in Lead podcast. We just recorded uh, an episode where we took a look at um, it's the 10 year anniversary of No Country for Old Men. So we took a look cool. at that movie. Um, and of course, the Land of the Crease podcast with uh, Greg Amortis and uh, Haddonfield Hatchet and Jesse Robbins. Uh, check us out or check me out there as well. Really cool, man. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Icarus Arts. Definitely check out Universal Monsters cast. We have some fun stuff coming up soon. And and I really enjoyed our last episode we did with Dark Mark. He was great to have on the show. Absolutely. Actually, yeah, I have some he, cool... he brought a lot. Yeah. We actually have some cool giveaways to do on that show as well that I'm excited about. Gary Poland, who was so gracious this episode, has given us some really cool Universal Monster stuff to give away as well. Cool. On that show. So head on over there and check us out if you haven't yet. We want to once again thank... Our sponsors for this episode, printedinblood.com, Ghoulish Gary Poland, one of the great horror artists out there, POV Horror, Found Footage Critic, and of course, the great Fright Rags for their t-shirts. Thank you guys for sponsoring the show. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. Thanks to Chris Peckover for appearing on the show. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors and by listeners like you who support us at our Patreon page. You can become a Movie Podcast Network patron for the low, low cost of $2.50 per month. That's at patreon.com slash moviepodcastnetwork. You can also pick up a Horror Movie Podcast t-shirt at teespring.com slash stores slash horrormoviecast. The very easiest way that you can support this show if you like what we do is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a five-star review. It really helps with our visibility. And even better than that, just tell a friend. If you'd like to submit your list for inclusion in our year-end episode, check out Jay's blog post at horrormoviepodcast.com. It tells you how to submit your list there. You can also leave comments for this show and any other show at horrormoviepodcast.com. If you want to get more involved in the show, you can send us an email at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 801-382-8789 or find us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at horrormoviecast. The music you're listening to right now is courtesy of singer-songwriter Frederick Ingram and the classical Christmas cover of Fred's song you heard at the beginning of the show is from our good friend Kagan Breitenbach. Thank you to Kagan for all the amazing music that he produces for us. Remember to stick around at the end here. You can hear Kagan's full cover of the music from Better Watch Out. To anybody who won a prize on this episode, email me at thewolfmanjosh at gmail.com with your shipping address and details, and I will get that sent out to you. I am going to give you three weeks to claim your prize because I know a lot of people are lagged behind when they listen to the podcast. I always have people tell me, oh, I'm just catching up to your Thanksgiving episode and it's mid-December. So I will give you guys three weeks to claim your prize. If you do not claim it, we're going to give it away to somebody else because you never know. One of those, you know, pins I gave away was to a listener who left a review in 2014. I don't even know if they're still listening. So Right, right. You know, we'll we'll get these to somebody. We're not going to sit on them. And so uh, please claim your prizes promptly. We'd appreciate that. And, we, you know, we'll definitely get those sent out to you as quickly as we can. Thank you guys all for listening. Hope Jay of the Dead is doing well. He sends you his best, too. We hope you all have the happiest of holidays, whatever you celebrate. For us, it's Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year from Horror Movie Podcast. We will see you soon with our top 10 movies of 2017 and our very next episode of Horror Movie Podcast where we are dead serious about horror movies. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs>